Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Seventh Circle of Film podcast. I'm your host Kieran and joining me once again is Steph who I have dragged away from Cyberpunk to watch four films about cannibals in the hills. Uh, is this self-torture or is this me forcing you on this? The, yeah, this is getting to a bit... Well, the last few have been a bit of a pain in the ass but I'll make the exception... For the listeners and for you as well. Yeah, you can only blame yourself, really, at this point, after watching three hostels and still agreeing to another yeah. weekend. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, that's, that's mostly on me, so... Actually, Cyberpunk came out, what? When we were recording this, recording this on a Sunday, Cyberpunk came out on the Thursday. You were working both days and have spent most of your weekend watching these? Yeah, I've played... Thankfully, because... I managed to finagle out of one of my shifts. I managed to play about 30 hours of it so far. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah I've, you had I any have... sleep at all? I've had three hours on one day and I've had about four on another, but I'm good. Let's do this. Actually, it might be a contributing factor to uh, why I most fell to sleep during these ones. A contributing factor, certainly not the only. Uh, so, obviously, we've got to do this a bit differently to Hostel given that it isn't three linear films uh, going forward in time. You've got two from the 70s and 80s, two modern ones, 2006, 2007. So decided to do this going to the older Wes Craven ones first and then jumping into the new ones after. Uh, The first film of each, pretty much a remake. There's a few differences here and there. The modern ones expanded uh, quite a bit. Yeah, from the original. Uh, the old ones, pretty much one location for all of it. Whereas the newer ones, obviously, it's got a bit more production value. It's got like um, a shanty town and stuff like that in it. Uh, so, with the first one, directed and written by Wes Craven, of course, it's his third feature film before Nightmare on Elm Street, before Scream. He really doesn't need an introduction. Yeah. He's one of the big granddaddies of horror you've got yeah, him Clive Barker uh, John Carpenter he's just an amazing writer an amazing director not so much for these ones but I actually know Wes Craven in this like uh, like I know I said the last episode that I was not familiar with most horror things but Wes Craven I'm absolutely sure I know of I should hope so given the podcast <laughs> yeah I mean, that's that's why I'm here, for the unbiased opinion. So, starring, there's the absolutely iconic, at this point, I think it's fair to say, Michael Berryman, also yeah. in One Flow of the Cooker's Nest, great in that. And I think it has to be mentioned, when you're talking about him, he suffers from a disease that I'm going to butcher completely. Hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, I want to say. I think yeah, that's the sure. best I can manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, he's bold from this. He, I don't think he has any fingernails and he doesn't sweat, which for this film, quite an important point. Obviously, yeah. they're filmed in the desert uh, and it's a big problem if you can't sweat. You know, you overheat very quickly, you can pass out, die of heat stroke. I believe what they had to do, they had about two hours to film in little intervals with the guy. Uh, and then they had to throw a wet blanket over him to stop him from dying. Oh, that's dedication. Yeah. Putting your life on the line. I mean, I don't know, it's almost like a dedication to the job if that's the kind of shit that you have to go through daily. 
on set. I say it's worth it. He does a very good job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd say he's like the most believable, like murderer. Of the other murderers, the only other real big hitter, uh, Papa Jupiter, played by James Whitworth, who I have actually seen in something else. A can't really call it a classic, but I love it. Planet of the Dinosaurs, which is a beautiful little. It's been a long time since I've looked at it, but it had a spaceship landing on a planet, a proper no B movie, filled with dinosaurs roaming about. It's terrible, but one of those great little. I can put it on and just have the nostalgia. That sounds amazing. You know, I'm pretty much all there for the B movies, so uh, I may look that up at some. Kind of think the old Captain Kirk fighting off the lizard monsters. That level of uh, effects, and it's just a classic. Oh wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Uh, and I suppose have to mention the family as well. Uh, the only real person of note, uh, the guy who plays Doug, Martin Spear, who hasn't really been in anything beyond uh, this film and Hills of Eyes 2, sort of, in flashbacks. Yeah, of the family, they're really not... You can't say they're starring, they have no personality to them, they have no real chemistry between a lot of them. It's a bit drab, a bit bland. Yeah. I I know that this I know it's an old film and whatnot and let's face it a lot of the like my dad watches like old country and westerns and things like that it all seems a bit wooden to me like there's no personality to literally anyone except the main character is pretty much who they are in real life it it just seems like they've written a story to go oh that's them this is what this person would be like in country and western days and it gets kind of boring like you don't watch a movie to watch a normal person go through something or if you do it it's like a hostile sort of thing and it's very uncomfortable but in in my eyes you watch a movie to see like extraordinary people to do extraordinary things or you see what happens if this was slightly different in our world like there's always like a niche for something but for this it was literally just like an ordinary family come across like mutated family it's very much by the numbers stuff almost felt kind of cabin in the woods-esque obviously they purposefully made the people as generic as possible for that one i forgive it a little obviously because it is quite an old film almost the progenitor of the cliche i don't think you can call it cliche when it's uh, one of the originals uh, you obviously touched on country and western, and I think really the star of the show, uh, beyond the cast, is the actual location, which does look really good. Uh, yeah. Made me yeah. think why they didn't do like, more horrors in a desert environment. See, the only thing that I can think of is why they didn't do more desert environment horrors. It's because, obviously, it's bright, it's pretty much a flat plane, or it's like a it's like a fairly open plane so you can see things coming maybe like the only way that they in this film they get around it by doing so many weird things like okay yeah that it is a wide open plane but they use like the mount like the small hills and rock uh, formations to kind of climb up and get a good view about they've got like ghillie suits that they hide in and things like that there's loads of ways to get around through it yeah yeah using the hills literally as little vantage points hills of eyes as it were 
honestly, the only other horror film I think of in a desert is a film that came out 2015 with Kurt Russell called Bone Tomahawk, which is a cowboy film about cannibals. Great film. Probably, yeah, probably better than Hills Have Eyes. I've actually not seen that, so I might check that out as well. Yeah, really worth watching. Kurt Russell, always great and really puts it through on that. And the location in that as well uh, is really spectacular. Uh, But jumping into the plot then, so our standard little family start driving up towards and again I can't really call it cliche if it's a progenitor of the uh, cliche as it were but they go to the hell gas station that's in every other film Uh, I don't know how many gas stations you've been to in your time at petrol stations around the country none of which I've gone to are anything like these you know you get the ramshackle wooden shack you have a creepy old man with barely any teeth who speaks in riddles. Yeah, and they've got their old, the old uh, hand pump gas pipes. If it's just an American thing, maybe someone write in, is your local gas attendant crazy? You fear for your life when you go to get petrol. I suppose he's got more of a reason to be the uh, kind of creepy, out of the way gas attendant in this. He's obviously he's the dad of was it Papa Jupiter? He's the kind of yeah, his grandpa, granddad of all of them. Also gives him a reason to stick around. Yeah, I was thinking of that in the when I was watching it. I was like, okay, I understand like why he's there, but and I understand that like some people would do anything for the family and all that. But when every visitor that you get, you're basically sending to this clan. At some point, you're like, you know, if family's like eating everyone at this place or if like loads of people have gone missing and they've driven driven through like this or past this place and they haven't been seen past that place maybe this place is a bit dangerous or maybe they're he clearly has he clearly has no care for them he has ruby uh who is one of the daughters of papa jupiter the only real likable uh person within the clan of cannibals tries to leave with him uh, he just rejects yeah. her outright and starts laughing at her a little harsh yeah. I'd have thought if you care this much you've been giving them food, you've been doing this and that you go yeah you can come with me I'll, I'll keep an eye on you, I'll take you to the authorities I'll do something maybe it was just when I was watching it but literally everyone in this film except for maybe Ruby is like completely unlikable oh yeah absolutely, everyone the whole family is just complete pieces of shit. The family, the clan, everyone. And the dogs, even the dogs are real vicious little bastards. Yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, let's cheer for the dogs, like, no. Just killing random people, no, fuck you. Yeah, uh, he rejects Ruby at the start of the film, and you kind of get an idea of the dynamic uh, immediately between the gas station attendant and the family. They clearly know each other, I think it's implied that they've been taking things from tourists, giving to him to trade for food and other such necessities, uh, which they carry over into the second film, though the dynamics changed a little. Uh, I think I do prefer the second film's dynamic, personally. I think this is a bit too personal. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just me, but um, when I was watching the first one, it, it was pretty much bare-boned. Like, I wasn't as how do you say sold it's sold as like this is a family and that that's the clan and whatnot and 
I need to be picking a side. Whereas literally I was just watching it going, yeah, they died, that's fine. Whereas the second one, they're still very unlikable, but they've got the, the people in the second one had more of like a personality going yeah, they're on. They're actually people, they're not. They are stereotypes yeah. of them to an extent, but they're believable stereotypes. They've got yeah. traits, yeah. they've got things. I think the only one really who has any character to him in this one is Big Bob. And it's just he's a bit arrogant, he was a detective uh, and has a heart problem. I think that's the only real things you can give. Yeah. In this one, it's pretty much, like you said, that it starts off, you're already, like, there, if you know what I mean. You're already, like, in the middle of it. Whereas the second one, you've got a bit of, like, the first 20 minutes, maybe, is basically, like, backstory on, like, other people that you're actually going to be watching throughout this film. Yeah, there's a lot of build-up, uh, and it it doesn't feel long in the second one. You still get to the action quite quickly, and the tension still being built up constantly. Especially with the location, obviously, it's big, it's open, and you know people are there. It's a great way to build up tension naturally, which I don't think this film really utilised. But it's quite on the nose uh, throughout the entire thing of it. There's no subtlety, really. Yeah, uh, they get some gas from this uh, attendant who tries to kind of fog them on constantly and uh, they start driving off again down is it a backwater road, which I never yeah. quite yeah, understood. They're tr- yeah, the, the family uh, have recently bought a mine or something and they were like, right, we're going to start hacking out the gold or whatever's found in there and we're going to um, get filthy rich but at some point it seems like they forget completely and they're like we're going to California because I want to be an actress which was Brenda I think Brenda wanted to be the actress yeah I think she was just talking uh, about going to LA herself to act oh. or something uh, it got glossed over really quickly yeah uh, like, uh, like I understand they, they've bought a mine whatever that's fine and they're going to obviously mine it but in my head I was like why would you I understand you want to get there as quick as you can but if the main road takes you there why would you go off onto a dirt road just to get there like 10-20 minutes earlier Yeah, obviously they um, fixed that a little bit in the remake having Bob be a bit of a arrogant uh, douchebag and say you know swinging his dick around saying yeah we can take this shortcut we'll be fine uh, sure in yeah. his own driving in this one they just take this random dirt road rather than the highway for some reason I'm sure I'm assuming it's the same kind of thing that he thinks oh it's a shortcut we can go down here it'll be quick and he's arrogant enough to think yeah nothing will happen in the middle of nowhere but it's never said openly yeah and they start driving down uh, for a little while down this little rugged bit of road uh, and here's kind of where my problem comes in with the first script error for me. Uh, his films before this, of the ones I've seen, Wes Craven, which is his third film, he did a film called The Last House on the Left. I think it was his first, if I remember rightly, uh, which was a film really built around coincidence. The yeah, uh, There was a daughter that was killed by a group of friends, and that group of friends ended up happening to go to uh, her dad's house, and the dad murders them all. 
uh, quite brutally. It's it's kind of a juxtapositioning uh, brutality with uh, normal everyday life, trying to show that people can be savage if you place them in these positions, which is pretty mm. much I think what this film's doing as well. Certainly at the end, I got that, uh, but it's predicated around a lot of coincidences. The story of Last House on the Left, and I think this one as well, to a ridiculous degree. Uh, so in the remake, obviously they put uh, roadblocks to cut the tyres. I can't remember what they're called now. Tyre spikes? Yeah, tyre strip. Oh, yeah, yeah, something like that. thing the police use to kind of shove onto road and take off the tyres. Uh, it's a trap to pop everything and to be able to uh, take everything off. And obviously you just think it's a rock or something. So it's, it's a fairly good plan. Uh, in this, they don't do anything like that. They just happen to be lucky with a rabbit running into the middle of the road and then Bob swerves off to the side and given the amount of victims they've had I could only really assume that this rabbit was some sort of holy grail style trained rabbit (laughs) that they send out as a distraction so people just swerve I mean obviously it's a rabbit it's hard to see as it is Uh, yeah uh, there is uh, I don't know where they'd find a rabbit in the desert first thing I don't know if there's desert rabbits. I'm, I'm not r- much of a nature person. But they must have either trained that rabbit to do that every time it sees a vehicle. Or I think the grandpappy old guy creep at the gas station was the one that sent him that way. Yeah, more or less. Uh, it wasn't quite as obvious as he did in the remakes. Obviously, they made a point of it. Uh, but obviously, the road ends about a few miles further on. Uh, because Doug goes up to check and he says, oh, there's a load of cars with a load of abandoned stuff and comes back. So I presume there was some sort of trap they were going to set up or they really do just have a rabbit that runs in front of all these cars and that works every time. The only, the only thing that I can think of is when Grandpappy was at the gas station supposedly fish, fin- filling up their gas tanks is he wouldn't really do it and then let them run out of fuel along that track. Oh, that could make sense, yeah, if he messed with their cars at some point. I suppose, yeah, because he was getting out, so maybe he didn't do any of that. Yeah, I mean, maybe, like, because it did seem like at the start of the film, it's him basically going, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. So maybe that, that maybe the next vehicle that came through, which was obviously this family, maybe he was like, nah, I'm just going to advise these people, don't do stupid shit, just leave just stay on the highway because I think he specifically says that he's like just stay on the main road and you'll be good yeah yeah he tries to push him away and they don't really take it and yeah I I think that's probably the best way of thinking about it the best trap they had is just getting him to uh, ruin the car didn't do it I didn't think about that at all certainly better than the idea of the holy grail rabbit theory by the way yeah that's what happens they uh, crash uh, trying to swerve to avoid a rabbit. They avoid the rabbit, and the rabbit survives the entire thing. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Yet, and it pops up occasionally. I do want to point out, they they have a baby pig. Or is it the, the, the gas station attendant has the baby pig? Yeah, the gas uh, station attendant had it, and I think they stole it, the cannibal family. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out why... Presume to eat for the cannibal family at least. No, because at one point the mother, I use air quotes, 
the mother of the family, she's asleep in like a small cave area, and she she has a live baby pig, which I assume is the same one, and she's just sleeping with it. Well, I mean, I suppose you can't get pets out in the middle of nowhere. Can't get a dog. Yeah, because apparently it'll kill your family. Not the rabbit, though. Rabbit's yeah, safe not the, the rabbit. dog's rabbit. Rabbit's good. Yeah, not a single dog went for a rabbit in this film, so you're okay. Yeah, as they uh, crash and burn, they come up with a plan uh, where one of them, uh, Big Bob, is going to go check back on the gas station, head back, try and use a phone, or at least get some help to fix the car while Doug is going to head further down the road and see if he can't find anyone. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've, we're not talking much about so the personality because there isn't any. Yeah, uh, there's literally... Uh, I feel bad because I'm not ad- actually saying anything in this, but there's literally nothing to say about any person in this film until, like, shit starts going down, so... It honestly took me a few minutes to realise uh, that Lynn was married to Doug. <laughs> and even then, I couldn't quite tell between the two sisters. It it took me a while. They go, oh, they're married. And that's the yeah. son-in-law? Okay. Yeah, it did take me a bit to figure out that the son-in-law was actually married to the darker-haired one of the sisters. Because in my... In my head, I was like, okay, the baby's blonde, so obviously he's married to the blonde one. And then there's a bit in the film where they go out and get Jiggy in the station wagon, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe he's married to her then. Yeah, I reckon it might be some, like, she's electric situation. Uh, because he keeps hitting on the sister. He calls her, like, sweetheart and baby, and hugs her first when he comes back. There's all these really bizarre things. I think maybe there's been like a, a like a light, l- tiny little cut where, I don't know, there's like an extramarital thing going on between them. Maybe. It makes more sense. It adds like a bit of personality to it, I think. It adds some depth. Yeah. They're a little older in this one, at least, than the remake. I think the, the youngest one, uh, little Bob, about in his 20s, about 20. In the remake, he's about 15, as is Brenda. She's a lot younger. And in this one, yeah, they, I don't think any of them are younger than 20, which it takes for me takes away some of the tension. I think a 20-year-old certainly couldn't, you know, go fist-to-fist with uh, one of the bigger ones, but Pluto, the one played by um, Michael Berryman, I think he'd have a good shot with. He looks athletic as anything. He does, like, flips and yeah. everything. Yeah, he does, like, a... a- a gymnastic fucking cartwheel and backflip and he he doesn't look muscly as shit but he looks toned like he he looks like he does some physical fitness so a kind of gymnast build yeah. I don't know maybe it's maybe we're just reading too much into it you've got to it's trying to prescribe personality and different characteristics to these people it's coming up with something to give them because otherwise he's just an idiot oh he's still an idiot but so yeah uh, the two head off Doug said going further up the road to find some help while Big Bob goes uh, to check on the gas station it's, it's I think 15 miles they said which you can do in a day 
uh, I wouldn't expect to come back to be honest 30 mile trek there and back that's quite a lot uh, yeah he goes all the way down uh, to the gas station gets there about as night falls I think I, I took it at about 8 o'clock uh, and for some reason gets his gun out and sneaks into the property without knocking without saying anything basically trespasses uh, and starts going through the guy's stuff yeah there is a lot in this film where I'm I genuinely don't know whether they try to make the family as unlikable as possible so when anyone gets killed in this they're like yay but my whole thing in this I was like I don't like anyone except for the um, Ruby in this well I'm pretty sure it's taking Wes Craven's uh, usual theme for his earlier work of putting normal people in horrific situations and watching them become savage kind of um, anti-sci-fi anti cannibal holocaust thing if you've ever seen that that's horrific actually it's the same kind of thing as cannibal holocaust oh right okay uh watching people that you seem as sane you know high members of society that turn savage when placed into any problem situation and bob yeah for some reason he goes trespassing creeps onto this guy's property starts looking for his stuff uh and is then surprised when the guy shoots at him oh Oh. gas station attendant starts shooting which i would if uh if someone came into my house without knocking without saying anything and just started going for my stuff I'd have a bat ready yeah especially when there's a highly dangerous clan around that I don't know have been known to eat people I'd, I'd possibly have a shotgun with me too <laughs> yeah he fires out, misses and Bob fires a couple shots back uh, it's surprised that he was shot at which I, I don't get why you would be you're a cop for god's sake you should know what you're doing yeah uh, and the gas station attendant then tries to hang himself, which is understandable given the clan, obviously. Bob, once again, quite confused. I think I, I quite like the line where he, uh, when he's hanging himself, I think Bob, yeah, the guy says, you know, I'm trying to kill myself. And Bob says, is that how you respond to people trespassing on your property, hanging yourself? Kind of just admitting that, yeah, I'm an idiot who's came onto <laughs> your property, rummaging for your own stuff. There is a lot of things in this, like, that's probably a highlight, (laughs) just for me, just because, alright, it doesn't put too much emphasis on it, but if a man's willing to, like, kill himself instead of being caught by the clan, then, okay, yeah, this clan must be fucking mental. And yeah, it absolutely would, as you do see, it gets quite horrific later in. So he then tells Bob a story of the family. He basically goes on about uh, how he birthed a son. His wife did. He how he birthed a son. How his wife <laughs> birthed a son uh, that came out sideways and was twenty pounds. I think. So by the age of ten, he was about as big as him, and is it a murderous psychopath? Uh, Papa Jupiter, basically. Yeah. Uh, Papa Jupiter ends up. Ended up about, I think, like 14, 15. Ended up killing the guy's daughter and wife uh, by setting the house on fire. Oh, yeah, just an out-and-out murderer. Mm-hmm. A dangerous individual. And uh, the gas station attendant left him in the middle of the desert 
to die and starve to death, but he somehow survived. Managed to find a woman to have kids with and have a family with, and for some reason the gas station attendant has stuck around to help them. I don't know if it's yeah. a sense of guilt. I've actually I've got the one of the wikis open. It's as a child he killed the livestock of his father's farm and later murdered his own sister. Fred hit his son with a tire iron and split his face and then left him to die in the wilderness. Jupiter survived and mated with a depraved alcoholic prostitute known as Mama. So there you go. Yeah, there's the fun backstory. Uh, I think, if I remember rightly, this is based off a English, or Scottish, I should say, tale. Shawnee Bean? Not Sean Bean. Uh, no, no, Shawnee Bean, yeah. Shawnee Bean. Oh, uh, right, okay. Not to be confused with Sean Bean. Yeah, because he'd die at the end of this. Which, yeah, Shawnee Bean, a uh, mass murdering Scottish cannibal clan, which unfortunately I believe are believed to be legends, or fortunately, as it were, uh, who hid out in a cave in a Galloway area and murdered travellers, a family of about 36 of them, I think, murdered upwards of 5,000 people and eventually uh, killed, hung from the neck till death. Uh, there's no actual evidence, I think. Absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's about as depraved as the actual film, uh, the story of Shorty Bean. Quite an interesting one, it's worth looking up. I actually didn't know that, I might actually check that out now. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, so he goes over the story of his son, Papa Jupiter, and is then taken through the window by Papa Jupiter himself, uh, and is beaten to death with a tire iron, which I think he mentioned at one point in his story that he hit Jupiter in the face with a tire iron, and it did nothing to him. Yeah, yeah, he, Grandpappy beat his son with the tire iron, and uh, the son obviously tried to get his own back. I think at one point he was nailed to the, like, door of the latrine. Yeah, very quickly, should be added. Yeah. He's, uh, Bob comes out, obviously he's dead, I imagine the tire iron, one hit to the head as a 65, 70-year-old, that's you out for the count. Uh, but then, yeah, he's nailed to the door of the latrine, Uh Expeditiously, really expeditiously. Yeah. Literally, maybe 10, 15 seconds have passed. He's been clubbed to death, and then he's been nailed to the latrine door, and then. Silently, he's ma- I might add as well. To disappear, yeah. Yeah, completely disappears. Uh, doesn't do anything to Bob, actually. He just runs off into the wilderness. I don't quite know what his plan is. Yeah, I genuine like at that point I'm like, okay, you've killed Grandpappy, but why wouldn't you just stay around and pick off the one dude that's on his own? Yeah, it's probably the best point of ambush as well, because obviously then run into the desert where you've got no cover, Mm -hmm. and there can't be a plan there. He's got a gun. He'll see you coming from a mile away. Even in the dark, he'll see you coming. Yeah, even even if he was literally just on the opposite side of the door, and when this bob dude walked through just clunk him on the back of the head with the tire iron yeah so i remember i think it's a red letter media video about knives you, you tend to have the upper hand if you're within 50 feet i think if you've got a knife and they've got a gun you can get to them a lot faster than they can shoot you obviously yeah. it takes a couple seconds to get it up and he's a retired cop but obviously they don't know that and this is your best opportunity uh, but instead they just laugh at him and start taunting him it's just a bit mean uh, and he starts running back. He's mentioned earlier he had a heart problem. So he's running back towards the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he collapses 
eventually. Yeah, he's obviously running 15 miles. I mean, I couldn't run 15 miles. That I run. I, I could barely run one. Yeah, I can't imagine at 65 I'll be able to get 15 in me. After walking 15 miles as well. Uh, yeah, so obviously he collapses in the ground and is then picked up by Papa Jupiter. Uh, and then you start see glimpses for the next kind of 20 minutes as you go back and forth between Bob occasionally in very short segments and the family that are still at the uh, station wagon and little towed-on caravan. I think he has a cactus shoved through his mouth, so that was, as it hits him with a rock, which is it's pretty brutal. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Uh, he's also nailed to a cross, uh, and that's the last you see of him for a while, until everything actually starts to kick off. Mm -hmm. So uh, before everything does kick off, we'll jump back to the family with the station wagon and the caravan, who are, uh, yeah, horrible people. Genuinely yeah. horrible people. Yeah, they're talking about... Uh, actually, they're having a laugh and a joke about how their dog killed a little chihuahua next door and haha. Poodle? Oh, poodle, that was it. Haha, wasn't that funny? And at this point, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay with seeing any of these die. Yeah, I think they said at one point, oh, Bob was really annoyed that he had to pay the vet bill. Presumably yeah. to put the poodle down. What a prick. Like, I get it, I think. I think you're just trying to make your family seem. Or you're trying to make the dogs seem like vicious and able to do all this sort of stuff. But in my head, I'm just like, nah, it just makes the family dicks, so I'm fine with seeing them dead. If I was going to do it, I think I just said that the dogs were police dogs trying to do all this. Bob took them when he left the force. Very easy to shove in a. Yeah, they know how to fight. Yeah, these are like trained police dogs and. They're basically like Bob's dogs. Oh, to be fair, do you even need that? They're German Shepherds. They're big dogs. Yeah. I, I think I can just believe that, yeah, they're big dogs. They'll attack stuff. Although, to be fair, it's both dogs will attack things. One does it very successfully and the other one doesn't. No, yeah, one's fairly useless. One attacks stuff without command. It just yeah. goes on a murdering rampage. God knows what would happen if you let this thing out in your neighbourhood. You'd have dead kids for miles. These things should be ripping throats out left, right and centre. Uh, yeah, the family starts talking about the poodle death. And then one of the dogs, I think Beauty, is Beauty and Beast. Beauty uh, starts barking and she's going a bit mental. And for some reason Brenda just lets her out. Yeah, it's like, go kill to your heart's content. Yeah, it just chases off into the wilderness complete idiot opening the door there uh, and Bob, little Bob starts running after it uh, it goes kind of through rock formations and the like I don't know quite what it was running after because it seems to lose what it was running after a little bit in and I feel like a dog, it wouldn't get the general area it'd get the exact location because it, it starts running and eventually I think it's killed by Pluto Pluto I think almost turns it inside out from the look of it yeah, it's not right. bad. Uh, they don't hold on it long, as I really don't think they should. It's obviously, uh, with a budget of, at the time, $230,000. Uh, Inflation-based, that's currently 900000 mm. Roughly the same budget, actually, as Evil Dead. It's, it's out by about fifty grand. Yeah, It's about yeah. the same. Uh, 
I, I do give a lot of leeway for films with a low budget for kind of passion projects that directors manage to scrounge budgets together for, especially back then when really you don't have a big indie house of funders like A to A. Yeah, yeah. So you have to kind of go house to house knocking on dentist doors, as Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell did, to fund Evil Dead. Uh, so I can appreciate that it takes a lot of effort and you need a lot of passion <clears throat> to be able to go through that. Yeah. Uh, and I'll give leeway in a lot of things. The acting, I'll, I'll allow it to be a little crap, which it is in this film because you can't hire big actors. I'll give the effects a bit of a uh, pass because you can't have amazing effects. They're good in this, has to be said, for the budget they had and for the era it came out in. It's no the thing, but it's certainly fine. Uh, what I won't give a pass for is just bad script writing because that can be fixed no matter what budget you're at. Yeah. Which is unfortunately what this film suffers with. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I feel, obviously, that the remake did it that did the first one a bit better because obviously they yeah they've put a bit more money into it but it seems that every or almost every hole that was in this one kind of got patched up in the remake so uh, don't get me wrong again the same thing like with Evil Dead's my favourite horror film so I'm a fan of okay yeah you don't have enough money to actually do something with this but a bit of creativity and a bit of ingenuity and your heart and your part can kind of skip a lot of like the shortcomings of what you're getting yeah the very interesting camera work fun shots uh, which you can do on any budget i know evil dead one of my favorite shots when um the entity runs at the cabin they mm-hmm. had two bits of plywood uh that smacked into the window to try to keep the camera from breaking. Really innovative, cheap stuff that's uh, you know, amazing. Uh, shots in that are still used to this day. Uh, the camera work on this film, it's fine. It's perfectly serviceable. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was impressed ever by anything. I don't think there was any shots where I went, that's, that's really great. I, had they managed to do that? Had they managed to film that? Yeah, it was passable. It was... Uh, I think I said this about... Um... Hostel, like the Hostel film seemed like a student film and kind of got put together hodgepodge sort of thing whereas this one, maybe not proper production value sort of thing, but it's a bit more high tail than what that was that goes fairly a long way for me um, alright, maybe it, it it's not the most well written film, but like I said, if they're able to do something with it that isn't just, oh, it's just another generic kind of horror film, then I'm fine with it. Yeah, it's certainly better shot than his first outing, last house on the left, which I really didn't enjoy at all. Uh, he's had two films to cut his teeth on. You can tell he knows what he's doing, to some extent, with the budget yeah. he's got. Very similar kind of stuff, very similar actor level. Uh, but yeah, he knows a lot more now. Uh, but yeah, one thing he does do well, as I said, is filming uh, the horror side of things, the gore side of things, in that he doesn't focus on them much. He kind of looks at it and then moves away. You get enough to kind of satisfy your appetite without it being ruined by the lack of budget, uh, which is something I think a lot of filmmakers do need to learn, especially in the low-budget areas that 
effects they're never that realistic I mean, it's better now but certainly back in the day and with low budget stuff you can't get photorealistic gore it's just not affordable and you can really easily fix this by just peering on it for a moment and turning away and I'll fill in the blanks in my head yeah it's obviously it's not just the gore it's not a gore porn thing it's the emotional punch that you want to get and you can get that in a split second which he does as you said yeah Pluto basically disemboweled the dog who did a very poor job compared to how uh, her sibling brother does later on Beast yeah like if he's the one that actually murdered Beauty he's got a 100% track record as of this moment with dogs German shepherds and then this is more in the second film but he is like absolutely terrified of this dog that's gonna fuck him up in the next couple of scenes he gets destroyed by it the other dog he gets completely schooled yeah like I don't he doesn't even get like a hit off at all nothing no yeah he looks pathetic he like loses knife and everything uh, to beast God knows what yeah. the training regimes were for the two of them. Yeah, so Bobby finds Beauty disemboweled. Yeah. And this is a problem in both films, script-wise for me. Uh, he runs back, knocks his head. I think in the remake, yeah, he falls kind of down a ravine uh, mm-hmm. and really does damage to himself. In this one, he turns around and slips as he's walking down a slope. Uh, which why you turn around I understand there's something behind you there's something running after you uh, firstly why would you look to see what it is and give it time to catch up and secondly why would you turn around on a downward slope it yeah. can't be easy to do I, I've, I've walked in the woods yeah. it's unstable for god's sake little rock formations yeah I'll fall down walking forwards let alone walking backwards so uh, yeah it's just one of those things that I think it's written in there to kind of go, uh, this happened. But if the fall had like given him some kind of ailment, like a concussion, or he'd like he'd had like short term memory loss or something, I'd be like, okay, that 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 could be a reason why that's happened, or why he doesn't tell anyone about the dog or anything like that. Oh yeah, a concussion would certainly explain his behaviour further in the film. But it's not brought up it's literally just like oh he's fine he carries on running like there's little tiny bits in this where if they just put a tiny bit of an explanation to it I'd be like okay yeah I can forgive that and even beyond that it's not really explained why the uh, cannibals don't use that opportunity to kill the guy because they want to kill all of them it's established Papa Jupiter says later in the film yeah have you killed them all that would have been Mm -hmm. ample time to just slit his throat walk off he's on his own the other two men are um, off in the distance one going to check on some cars I can understand I suppose that they didn't see him walk in this open desert um, Big Bob obviously they've captured already you could have killed all three of them then and there and that would have made yeah. your job so much easier uh, you've got a baby and uh, then just three people left that can defend themselves you've, you've cut down by half but they decide to leave him concussed on the ground as to the family for a while for some reason I can't remember in the yeah. second one if in the remake if Brenda actually goes looking for him I can remember being really annoyed that they kind of just left him concussed on the ground to walk back for hours 
Uh, in this one, they wait hours as well to go actually looking for him. They wait till nightfall for some reason. Yeah, a little Bob obviously can cuss on the ground. And they seem to wait a while. It gets nightfall because he didn't go that far. Yeah, he ran after the dog. Which, okay, fair enough. He's the one that ran after the dog. Maybe don't follow him. But if he's gone for... I think 10 minutes. Hours. I'd go. We should look for him. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think if you're in a desert and actually, yeah, prob- yeah, about 10 minutes probably. Just because you're in a like weird environment, you've never been here before, you could very easily get lost in a desert. So yeah, rattlesnakes about. There are a sort of rock formations you can fall off. I'd go. I'd give it ten minutes, and I'd go. Yeah, we're yeah. gonna have to find him. He could be dead. He could be concussed on the ground, bleeding out, about to be slit. He could have. He could have tried to walk down a fucking hill backwards for some reason <laughs> and hit his head. Yeah, anything could happen. Uh, they do find him <laughs> and I kind of want to do go with the theory that he's concussed at this point because for some reason in both of the films he fails to mention that uh, Beauty was disemboweled uh, which would be the yeah. first thing I'd bring up yeah I'd be like okay there's something around here that's fucking tearing shit up they've tear- torn our dog to pieces be careful I think it's it's implied that he's trying to kind of like keep it away from the uh, women folk, as it were. Yeah, I think he's trying to keep everyone calm, but no offence. Being alerted to danger is a bit more higher priority to then just stay calm. I'll handle everything just in case I don't get disemboweled. Yeah, I mean, if he dies, that's it. Yeah, the family's fucked. They've got no idea what's coming, and... Uh... As you go through the film, you can see that these people can defend themselves. Uh, Lynn's a bit of a badass. She used a knife to cut into, I think it's Mars's leg. Uh, and Brenda goes ham on Papa Jupiter with a hatchet. They've clearly got some wits about them. They've got a level of defensibility. I think he tries to tell Doug. It's the only person he, he kind of confides in. Which in the second film, in the remake, it's made quite obvious that he has a lot of respect for Doug and he kind of looks up to him. In this one, I don't really get why he only tells Doug. They've got no proper relationship. Yeah, as uh, it seems that Doug is trained to be like a pacifist. He doesn't like carrying guns and things like that. Because Big Bob's got like a massive ass revolver and he gives Little Bob like a little pistol. And then I remember, like, they do not give Doug anything. Yeah, I know that. They don't give Doug any guns. I just assumed that was because it's all they had. Uh, but yeah, they might have took the piss out of him. The only thing I remember about Doug is he looked vaguely like um, one of the Beastie Boys from Sabotage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be fair. Yeah, he, he comes back. He doesn't tell his mum or sister, uh, Brenda, and I think her name was Ethel. Yeah, Ethel. Uh, doesn't tell either of them the issue that's going on with Beauty being disemboweled uh, and they decide to wait for uh, Doug and Bob to come back don't really worry about anything uh, eventually Doug comes back with a load of stuff uh, he does mention what he found I think it's the same kind of thing that happens in this, the remake uh, they don't show it but there's basically a load of cars that are piled up from what the cannibals have taken their victims from he just has a load of stuff some wire yeah I think the remake of it, he brings back like a teddy bear for his daughter. 
in this one he just has some wire that he brings back for some reason and a couple other bits of useless junk like he throws a flask to Bobby you see it in a lot of films where they they disappear for a bit and they come back with loads of like miscellaneous things that okay they'll eventually use for like a trap but in my head when I if I'm walking along if I see a bit of like a strip of wire I don't pick it up and go this will be useful for later well I mean what would be going through uh, my head is not you know there's a big gump with a load of cars and a load of stuff I'd be thinking why the hell is there a load of stuff in the middle of the desert there are easier ways to dump things yeah I know I know it's brought up early in the film that it's um like a, it used to be like a military testing ground where they test like weapons and oh it's, uh, it still is from what Galabies you see a uh, plane nukes. going overhead as they're oh, driving yeah, yeah. along uh, it's at least a flyover thing I think I'm pretty sure it's a military plane they still do some bombing runs and stuff I think in the second one they've stopped if there's a load of abandoned vehicles that are just strewn about I'm immediately like okay something's clearly wrong here if they're not stacked like like orderly and whatnot I'd be like if they're stacked like that I'd be like okay they're just gonna be scrapped eventually or they'll just be taken or demolished or they'll just be left there to fall to pieces or whatnot but if they're literally strewn about then I'd be like okay something's clearly wrong here let's quickly get back to the camper van and the station wagon and get the fuck out of here and yeah the problem does come from the idea of having to drag the cars all the way out here the government presumably for a dump it takes so much effort to do it'd mm-hmm. be a waste of time you could set it up way closer to civilization so not have to drag them all the way out here uh, yeah red flags would be jumping up and down and if bobby had said beauty's been disemboweled presumably that would be the kind of catalyst that yeah let's lock the trailer guns to the door yeah absolutely like i think there's only one tire missing from the station wagon uh yeah there's a tire that was burst with the rock why wouldn't he just go fuck it i'm gonna take one of these tires and just bring it back that's the point actually yeah just go grab a couple tires and move them back yeah even like okay i i understand like there's different tire sizes and things like that but you've had that station wagon for years i'd i'd assume you'd know what kind of size your tire would be and if you're not entirely certain take a couple and just be like let's see which one fits or regardless at least mention it to everyone say oh there's a load of cars we might be able to grab a tire and just fix it up yeah rather than the whole oh no it's just a dead end with a load of cars useless no no grab a tire we grabbed wire yeah, he grabbed wire and a flask. Uh, yeah, Kobe. which he throws to Bobby and Bobby throws back at him. Still not mentioning anything about the disemboweled dog. And then mm-hmm. out of the trailer, first one to come out, I think with Brenda, and runs up and hugs uh, Doug before his wife does. Because as I said, they have this she's electric situation going on where I presume Doug's just sleeping with everyone. <laughs> Including little Bob. I don't know, It, it the entire... It seems like it's missing pieces of the f- actual script, maybe. Yeah. Like it it seems like they've, to try and either cut the runtime or something, they've just gone, let's just cut this little bit out, let's cut that little bit out. 
I think it's almost a perfect 90 minutes. So they've clearly cut something. And it does, yeah, it feels disjointed as you go through it. There's bits missing here and there. Uh, certainly with Doug later, you feel like there should be more happening. When mm-hmm. he goes to try to get his baby, you feel like there should be a couple extra scenes put in here and there. Yeah. Uh, he kind of just goes there. He knows where it is. Yeah, he just wanders in a direction and gets lucky and finds them. And then, yeah, he he does nothing. It Everything happens for him. Mm-hmm. You, I think it cuts to Ruby, I remember rightly, and cuts to the cannibal family. You are given a lot more time with the uh, family in this one than in the remake. In this one with the family than the remake, which I think is to the benefit of this because the family in both films are quite interesting. Clan, yeah. Uh, yeah, the clan of people in both films, fairly varied. More so, I think, in the remake, to be honest. I quite enjoy trying to work out what their characters were from the visuals alone. And yeah. in this one, you get the dynamic through conversation. They talk a lot more. Uh, it's almost split 50-50, I think, between the complete lack of personality family and the clan who have something about them. You kind of tell the hierarchy very quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Ruby, they found out she was trying to leave the clan and run off with uh, Grandad. I presume they were spying on her. Uh, and they've chained her up to the side. Uh, started eating the dog, Beauty. Which again, I mean, it leads me to think, why the hell didn't they just slit Bob's throat? Yeah, like, okay, so they've they've disemboweled the dog. They've left. Let, Doug, uh, let little Bob see it. And then they've come back to grab the dog's corpse and then take it back. And did they see his little like handstand earlier? Terrified of him. Jiu-jitsu martial arts move. Yeah, can do a backflip. Don't mess with that boy. Uh, and they get they get chewed out by uh, I said Papa Jupiter later for not killing all of them. It, it just doesn't make much sense. But yeah, uh, Ruby's chained to a rock or something outside of their kind of ramshack hut. They've kind of got little cloth pieces. Uh, it, it mm-hmm. looks it looks fine. So the set design on this is quite good, uh, and uh, Big Mama, or Ma- it was just Mama in this one actually. Yeah, it's Mama, it's yeah. Big Mama in the remake. She kind of walks out. The prostitute, I think you said. I don't think he's ever mentioned her backstory. She's barely in it. Yeah, no. It, I, literally, the only reason I know she's a prostitute is because I'm literally reading the wiki. I can't remember if she dies or you know what the hell happens to her. I think. So she just I mean she's quite fat and she just dies of heart disease at some Maybe. point in the future because she's not in the second one uh, yeah uh, she's chained they basically laugh at her <clears throat> taunt her a little uh, and then we cut back to the trailer and station wagon and things start actually uh, picking up steam it starts getting yeah, relatively good Bob is set alight uh, as a distraction he's basically put on a cross kind of thing. A cactus has been taken out of his mouth and he's set on fire to pose a distraction for Pluto and Mars to get in the trailer and steal everything. Yeah, basically they go in, yeah, they go in take literally all the food that's in the fridge, they take, they've got Big Bob's revolver at this point. Yeah, because um, Big Bob's been set alight and they've nicked that off him uh, which Mars has. Yeah, they go in Brenda is asleep. They find her and make sure she stays quiet. Uh, when they realize, when the fam, uh, 
yeah, when the family realizes that Big Bub's on fire, they run back in, grab the fire extinguisher that apparently every caravan has. I don't know. Yeah, and then uh, Doug, he shouts out to Brenda, kind of keep an eye on Katie, the name of the yeah. daughter. He doesn't get a response, obviously, because uh, Mars... Oh, no, no, it wasn't Mars. Pluto. Pluto's got his hand over her mouth uh, to keep her silent. He takes that as, yeah, I'm sure she heard me. Or she's asleep. I don't know. And ignores it and runs out. Yeah, if there's literally no response and someone's on fire, okay, fair enough, yeah, I'd want to put that person out. But I'd throw the, the extinguisher to, I don't know, little Bob... And be like, all right, I'm just going to make sure that someone's looking after my baby. Well, just remove the curtain. It's it's easy to do. She's got absolutely nothing back from her. She's complete silence, hand over her mouth. And just go, oh, that's weird. Someone's on fire outside on a cross. I'm sure this has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's no people around possibly looking yeah. to kill us. He's we'll spontaneously leave. combusted while trying to climb a cactus. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he runs out and then uh, Pluto and Mars basically have lead of the place. Mars ends up eating most of the food they capture on the packet. Yeah, he, they've got two bodgies. It, he bites the heads off and like drinks the blood. I quite like that, actually. I think it's, again, it shows restraint on uh, Wes Craven's part to be able to kind of cut to it and cut away from it to use the budget to its benefit, yeah. uh, letting you kind of put in your head what a headless budgie looks like. It's more or less kind of, you don't see it through his hand. I think they just put a blood packet in his hand and had him squeeze it then drink that or syrup yeah. in his hand. I do want to point out he drinks milk like half a second before he rips off the budgie's head. Yeah, he drinks milk badly. Like milk yeah. just going down his throat out of his mouth. But to be fair he did have a mouthful of raw raw mincemeat, I, I think. Yeah, raw mincemeat. I think for a family who are presumably, you know, on edge with food, is you can't get many people coming up and down here. You'd be a bit more uh, economic with the captured goods. Yeah, I wouldn't just be sticking my hand in going, all right, let's eat that. And obviously I think he's an idiot, so he might well do that, but Papa Jupiter seems to have his wits about him a little. Uh, And he'd, he'd kill you doing stuff like this he seems to be the type to go off on one no yeah. reason Pluto his intelligence wavers through the two films he kind of goes from the smartest of the clan to a complete lunatic moron just on a dime for some reason at this point he tries to rape Brenda and mm-hmm. he's pushed off by Mars I think it's, you have to be a man to do that. Uh, it might be Pluto's intelligence. It might be just me conflating with the remake. So obviously Pluto in the remake is a moron. He's an invalid. But he goes on a bit of a rampage, Pluto. Yeah, he, the most he just... self-contained and calculated rampage where not quite sure uh, why. I didn't quite believe it, but he seems to kind of grab plates purposefully and throw them rather than just trashing things, you know, throwing stuff to the floor and Yeah. Seems yeah, more calculated than something that's mindless should be. But yeah, obviously it's quite emotional scene, it's infamous in a way. Uh Brenda's raped by Mars. It's not shown on camera. Mm-hmm. Probably for the best. Definitely for the best. 
again, Wes Craven kind of using better judgment, better part of valor to imply rather than showing. Yeah, uh, which is enough. He's, it's it's yeah, it's it's fairly horrific. It's it's kind of the worst thing you can do uh, in a lot of people's minds. And she acts it very well. She seems very traumatized after and before, uh, as opposed to the rest of the family who really don't. Yeah. Um, I know earlier on, it really annoyed me, Lynn, when she was told that Beauty's dead, she almost laughed at the start. I don't know if you picked up on it, but she had a kind of smiling giggle face and then went to, oh, no, I should be. I should be sad about this. I always wondered if that was just Wes Craven's. Yeah, you don't care about dogs. Find it a bit funny and then realise, oh, that's a psychopath. I should probably be annoyed. Uh, the only one who really, yeah, does look like they've gone through anything. Maybe Bobby as well. Uh, little Bob. He seems mm-hmm. a little traumatised. The only one who really goes through that is Brenda, played by Susan Lanier, who does a very good job. <clears throat> uh, I think Beyond the Cannibals, actually, she's probably my favourite of the lot. Yeah, I mean, she comes up with like the like end game trap at the end of the the film. So, like, I don't know whether she's supposed to be like the smartest one of them. Yeah, she comes but... up with everything. I think it's implied she came up with the match idea, which obviously he's given to Little Bob. Yeah. In the later one. So yeah, <clears throat> uh, Big Bob is taken off the cross after being extinguished by uh, Doug and. His wife starts laughing. Yeah, she. Uh, it, it seems like she has like a panic attack. Like that's not my bub or something like that. And then she like passes out. Maybe. Yeah, yeah she kind of. I think yeah, she has a complete mental breakdown, more or less, and starts saying that's not my bub. That's not my bub. Obviously, I'm not. I don't work in mental health or anything. I've never touched that area. I don't know if someone go out in hysterical laughing fit i'm sure i mean some people might it's a psychosis to uncontrollably laugh and but i mean with this film's tone and with a lot of the scenes already with the she laughed when a poodle was killed in my head all i could think was you you really just find this really funny and you're trying to say it's not my bob to pretend you don't care i know lynn then takes ethel back to the camper van where obviously brenda's been raped and whatnot um, when they walk in, I can't remember how it goes down, but yeah, there's it, a scuffle between the loss of them. It's a lot more clear in the remake and a lot more tense. I should add, they kind of yeah. string it out for a while. And one of the problems with this constantly during the first and second film of the originals is their use of music that really mm-hmm. annoyed me. In the remake, they're a lot more um, consistent in having silence in a lot of scenes, just letting it sit and simmer. In this one, they have to put music. They have to put scores and little stings at every point. It drives me nuts. The little jump scares, you have this big uh, trumpet boom. It takes you out the moment instantly, uh, especially during the fight. Yeah, to be fair, that that's like a lot of the older films for me. It seems like every jump scare and every kind of action scene kind of has to be like highlighted with a with a music score for some reason. But I've noticed that at least uh, in some of the more recent horror films that I've watched, the the newer ones, they start to dial it back a bit. They're like, okay, let's not absolutely stab your ear holes with a massive trumpet sound when a 
uh, person jumps out from behind a shadow and stuff. But I think if I was going to take a guess, obviously filmed by Wes Craven, who grew up presumably watching some silent films, which have to oh, not silent, not the silent ones, but the ones with cues, the ones with music that you know pop out occasionally. And I imagine that it's a holdover from that. It's it's shoving it through your film. It adds a level of tension in the silent films, and they are inspired. They grew up with that stuff. I can certainly forgive it more from the seventies, sixties, and eighties than I can now. When we, I think we know better. Uh, yeah, during the fight, it, it kind of goes back and forth between a lot of them. Uh, the two people, the um, Mars and Pluto, are basically useless. Yeah, I will say at one point uh, Ethel starts hitting Mars with a broom, like not not the 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 wooden end, the brush end. Yeah, it's like and I'm like angry parent would do. Yeah, it it's something you'd do to shush out like uh, kind of push a pet pet out of the door, like shoo shoo. I, I physically spit my drink out of that. It was... <laughs> It was so ridiculous. Uh, anyone would know it, it's an intruder in your house. It's not a fucking rat. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I understand. Picking up the first thing and hitting something with it, it's fine. As soon as you realise it's a broom and you're hitting them with the brush, I'd probably spin it round and hit them with the wooden stick end. Yeah, the broom weirdly does nothing. She ends up getting shot in the stomach for her uh, attempt. As does yeah. Lynn. Lynn gets shot a few times. She actually manages yeah. to do some damage, though, before she does so. Uh, Brenda kind of slides a knife over that Marge drops. I think because he was hit with the broom. He's yeah, they're that useless. Yeah, she, uh, he drops the bro- uh, He drops the knife because no, Lynn does. Uh, Lynn does doesn't doesn't she? She uh, rushes over to him and kind of like pushes him or something like that, and that oh, starts yeah. the scuffle. He drops the knife, then. Ethel starts hitting him with the brush. And yeah, it gives, I think, Brenda time to kind of pass the knife over to Lynn. Yeah, he knocks Lynn to the ground, turns around, shoots Ethel in the stomach. She falls back, obviously. Then he leaves, he holds the gun down to Lynn. And then that gives Brenda enough time to kind of weld their attentions on Lynn. To kind of push the knife over when he watches the knife slide over to her she picks it up stabs him in the thigh and then shoots her I, it seems like he shoots her in the exact set like he shoots her in the stomach which somehow ethel the older woman lives through and lynn the young female doesn't was she shot twice right she shot once in the stomach once i think somewhere like in the upper chest oh right okay uh, yeah she's shot she still stays up and then he shoots her again uh, because she's a bit of a badass in both the films uh, yeah keeping a baby safe as a mom, a good mum should I suppose and it, it's they're both killed off and for the 70s for 77 certainly this is quite groundbreaking to kill people off and rape people and all this stuff it's amazing that this was released as it was yeah uh, especially, I mean, you've got Evil Dead talked about. That was, I think, banned in the UK. Not the UK, the US for some time. The UK had to kind of save it. Yeah, it nearly didn't make cinema cut because it was too horrific. 
obviously even stuff like Life of Brian that was banned but this managed to just about get through I, I'm impressed really am and confused yeah there's there's a lot of stuff that uh, for some reason squeaks through while other tamer things don't and that's always confused me like the it seems like the certificate board are just like um that's a bit risky but this rape scene in this old uh, horror film that's good to go yeah we'll pass that maybe it's just kind of imperialist sneer coming back from the old days they kind of think oh good old boys killing the savages yes yes <laughs> pip pip we'll allow it uh, yeah uh Obviously, with the gunshot, it alerts everyone else. Because oh. if, rem- if I remember correctly, Little Bob chases after um, Mars and Pluto for a little bit. Yeah, I think Mars, he takes Brenda out, and I assumed it was kind of to take her back to the camp. But no, he, he kind of puts a gun in her mouth, the revolver, and you know, puts it down her throat, ready to blast her away. Goes to shoot Brenda, and then obviously it clicks her like it's empty. And then he's like, I'll be back. And then throws the gun down and fucks off. I think that was really good. Fair, Bob. He, he when you get him off the uh, cross, when they get him off the cross, he looks like shit. Uh, he yeah. burnt, not to the extent that he does in the remake. The remake's amazing. Really yeah. impressed. Uh, but for seventy-seven, the burns are pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like inspiration for Freddy Krueger later when he had to uh, obviously do the effects and sign off on. Uh, the burnt victim. Very good Freddy Krueger as well, obviously. Yeah. It looks like a burnt corpse. The original, not the remake for that one. The original's far better. The remake looks like a unripe tomato. Uh, Big Bob, he, he, you can see his breath coming in and out. Honestly, I think I can see genuine bits of uh, white kind of breath, air coming out. And you can see just when he dies. He goes silent, which I think was a really nice touch. That, again, that element of subtlety to Wes Craven. He's mm-hmm. screaming. When he was screaming, that annoyed me a little. I don't think it sounded like a guy who was burning alive. He kind of shouted, you know, help me, help me, please help me. But it was... It didn't have that element of danger to it. It didn't have that element of pain to it. Yeah, it didn't have that, like, emergency sort of panic that you'd have. Have you ever seen Kick-Ass? Yeah. Like that Nick Cage scene? With um, I can't remember his character's name, but when he's burning alive and hit Big girls Daddy. watching, yeah, Big Daddy, great scene. I mean, Nick Cage perfectly cast for that, uh, and he sounds like he's burning. He sounds like he's on fire, kind of dying in the remake as well. They get it spot on. Yeah, he's screaming, and Nick Cage obviously goes to like an alto every other second. His voice just perks up. Why the hell do we go to Nick Cage? Every single one of it, these. Yeah, it seems like we keep going back to Nick Cage. I think we should do a Nick Cage film at some point. <laughs> this isn't purposeful. I've not got notes about Nick Cage. It just happens to jump to him. This is a podcast about Nick Cage facts. Uh, yeah, um, it, it just doesn't have that pain. After, though, when he's on the ground and you get that element of subtlety from Wes Craven again, it's great. He just starts kind of drifting away uh, almost peacefully. Obviously mm-hmm. not, because he's covered in burns. It, it, that's very good. Uh, Doug then runs back to the trailer. Uh, Mars and Pluto at this point have ran off. Mars kind of limping away because he's been stabbed in, kind of like above the ankle, roughly. No, it's like the thigh. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a while up, to be fair. Uh, but he's limping now. Yeah. 
either way, which he keeps up through the entirety of the film. The the uh, clan goes through some shit. They really get battered during this, and it's quite creative, actually, some of the ways they're killed off. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. The different ideas here and there. It's, it's, it's certainly better than, I think, the remake, which is a bit more basic. But this one, they really do uh, do kind of a Home Alone-style <laughs> trap thing for at least one of them. Uh, Doug runs back to the caravan. Oh, um, yeah. At this point, Pluto's taken the baby and fucked off. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Pluto ran off with the baby. I think they ran off with the food as well. I didn't see him have any. But it's imp- I think they say they did. Yeah, I think they say they did, but I don't think they did. Like, because obviously Pluto's got the baby in his arms. And uh, Mars just runs off. Mar- yeah, Mars runs off, holding one leg, obviously, because it's bleeding. And the other hand had the revolver, so... Had Brenda originally carrying her out, putting the gun in her mouth. Yeah. I'll just I'll take that down to incompetence on Pluto and um, Mars's part. Yeah. I think it was implied to some extent this is their first time doing it. Papa Jupiter usually handles this sort of stuff. Yeah, basically Doug, uh, Doug starts running back, obviously, because Bob, Big Bob's dead. No point staying around with him. Heard gunshots, so he's ran back to the caravan he rushes in and finds Lynn dead on the floor and obviously he takes a minute minute and a half yeah, gets over it relatively quickly oh it, no it's it, it for me it was the he takes about a minute and a half to look over his clearly dead wife and ask if she's okay dead. to wake yeah. up yeah. yeah and then after about a minute and a half he kind of realize, realizes oh yeah, uh, Ethel's been shot too. Let's just. I, he reaches over and touches her, and she kind of like startles, like back, not back to life, but she kind of like very weakly comes around, and he starts uh, starts trying to like put blankets over her and stuff like that. Yeah, like you said, as like he gets over Lynn's death very quickly. And he, what really annoyed me, I think it's an acting quite really, possibly directing thing. He uh, then, after helping Ethel, he gives her blankets and she's out of it. Uh, he leaves her. He tells Bobby, oh, stay in the trailer, very you know, calmly, very calculatedly, mm-hmm. to stay in the trailer. Then he says, you know, I've got something to do. Then runs off and starts shouting out. It yeah. kind of goes from, right, we're in a situation, we've got to deal with it, no emotions, think this logically to... I'm going to be in Boron and run off into the middle of nowhere. I don't mind if he does that. I just want to say, yeah, if he runs out and starts screaming, his wife's dead and his kid's gone, yeah, run out and scream. But keep mm-hmm. the consistent tone of his character. He does one or the other. He's either, yeah. you know, fraught emotionally or he's logical and calm. Right, so, yeah, Bob's dead and Ethel's dead, Lynn's dead. You have Brenda and little Bob. They decide to stay in the caravan, and Doug. It's not really explained. You don't get a scene where they kind of converse and have a plan together. Yeah, there's not a lot of leaves. communication between the family in this yeah, part. They're just like, "Fuck it, you know what I'm doing." But yeah, he goes after his baby, which yeah. uh, expected. You then cut, as I think we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Ruby has been chained up at this point. She's fed some of the dog. Uh, she says something about 
dog ghost. Something that the ghost of the dog is haunting the area. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, It's yeah, clearly yeah. just another dog. She's apprehensive about eating it, which I didn't quite understand, because I presume this family eat crap like this all the time. Yeah, except for the rabbit. Yeah, the rabbit. The rabbit fucking it's fine. The rabbit, like, touches the dog, I think, at one point. That rabbit, it, no one fucks with it. Yeah, Doug ends up grabbing Beast and kind of runs off, and Beast gets away from Doug at some point. I can't remember the point that they uh, leave each other's presence. Beast just runs off, and he ends up uh, killing... I can't remember the name now, actually. Mercury? I think. Mercury, yeah. Mercury, at this point, hasn't been seen around the family, hasn't been seen around a caravan. Literally just, as far as the dog knows, or anyone knows, just a random fucking bypasser in the desert. Runs up, pushes him off a hill, uh, hilltop, falls to his death, and the dog's like, yeah, good job. Yeah, any other situation, this dog's a murderer. He's just slaughtered and innocent. Yeah. It, it, kind, it kind of makes me think, if these guys were in, in like a city, and the dog was like, I don't know, he ran up to the top of a... Uh, skyscraper and saw someone outside having a fag on top of a building would the dog just run up and push him off the fucking yeah or slit someone's throat or anything just bite away as he does to other people it's the thing with dogs you need to kind of command them to run forward and kill something they're not smart enough to realise oh yeah this is what killed my owner Yeah, they can't do that logical jump weirdly dogs don't have fixed perceptions on this person killed this person. They can't get that existential stuff. It's more a case of this person's got a weapon, I can attack him. That's the basic level you're working with. Why do I have to explain this? It's a dog. Uh, People should know it, the intelligence of the dog. It seems that the dog, the dog has a higher intelligence than pretty much any person in this film. Except for maybe Brenda when she makes a trap later. That or it's more savage than everyone else in the film, which is an achievement in itself. <laughs> Doug walks off and uh, really quickly finish off actually his story uh, at least up until the point where Katie's eventually stolen by Ruby and ran up a hill he does nothing pretty much Mm -hmm. for the rest of it uh, until the end chase he just walks, happens to find the encampment Yeah, Doug, Doug basically walks in a random direction and manages to get lucky and finds exactly where the uh, clan's fr- uh, is. So in the remake, he has Beast to show him where the place is, you know, kind of sniff mm-hmm. out. And in this one, Beast has ran off, killed Mercury, and he's stalking other people in the canyon. Like in this brutal, yeah. savage thing that would be the monster in any other horror film. But Pluto and Papa Jupiter at this point as well, they do hear Mercury getting pushed off a cliff. I think Pluto does and reports it to Papa Jupiter eventually where he said, oh I heard rocks falling uh, because mm-hmm. they can't pick him up on the radio. Papa Jupiter ends up you know, saying the whole did you kill everyone there? Is everyone dead? And they you know, they say no we didn't kill everyone. He says okay Mars, you're clearly injured, you're going to have to stay here and keep an eye on everything. Kill the baby if I say so. Uh, and he takes Pluto starts running off to deal with everyone else. Somehow they got a walkie-talkie. The uh, they got one of the family's walkie-talkies, from what I gathered. The family, one of the clan's walkie-talkies, uh, because they shot at a door because they heard something. 
mm-hmm. on the on the trailer door, and whatever was knocking on it, whatever was near it, dropped the walkie-talkie and managed to run away. Am I getting that wrong? No, I think you're right because I think Beast takes Mercury's. I think Beast takes Mercury's walkie-talkie, brings it back to the trailer, drops it on the steps, and obviously the family inside fire at, fire at the dog, and the dog's fucked off at this point. Yeah, the dog's just ran away. Dogs. And then they, they go outside, see that it's a walkie-talkie, and I don't know if they start talking through it, or... Yeah, they have uh, two, oh, no. two odd channels on it. They listen to it for the family and do something really stupid on their own ham radio. I do. I do want to point out that ham radio. Uh, uh, sorry, not ham radios. Uh, walkie-talkies. You need to press the button to hear the other. Like to talk through it, you need to press the button. But they literally just sit there and listen to the clan talk about how they're telling everyone to go back and murder everyone that's in the trailer. Yeah, I think Doug hears it and uh, tries to communicate back to uh, Bob and Brenda, who at this point aren't doing anything, really. Yeah. I think they're getting ready to set the traps, but they aren't listening to the walkie-talkie, which I would be on instantly. Uh, what they I... are doing, actually, is giving away how much ammo they have, uh, because, of course, they communicate through the ham radio as well with the clan, uh, Bob and Brenda, unknowingly, and... The clan, throughout the entirety of the film, has been shown that they can do voices. Yeah. They can make the sound of a beast, and they do a really good impression of a kind of sheriff, car, police officer, uh, as they kind of ask for help, and the police officer, yeah, he says all the right things to imitate him. Yeah, except how much ammunition do you have? And stupid, stupidly... Uh, little Bobby's like, yeah, we've got two rounds left. I do wonder, would I, would I realise that that's a trap question? If I was in a panicky situation, telling if you're in this kind of situation, I don't know if it's just me, but keeping as much personal information as I can to myself about my defences would be like a high priority. I'd be like, okay. Can you, if you are the police, can you just come to this area and get us? Because the clan already knows that. If they like, oh, how much, like ammunition or how much, uh, like, what have you got to defend yourselves? I'd be like, we've got enough stuff to defend ourselves. I suppose, especially on a ham radio where anyone could be listening in without yeah. having to pipe up at all. I mean, if you know they've got a walkie-talkie, you can probably go. All right, they might have something that can listen in on this conversation or at least join it yeah they just need the frequency they'd be able to pop in so even if it was the police I think assume constantly that yeah they are listening in so yeah they, they do you know they put on the police voice gather that they've only got two rounds left Pluto and Papa Jupiter start running towards the trailer uh, and at this point Brenda starts coming up with a plan to set up a couple traps they set up two of them one of them you know was Brenda's idea one of them it's never said but you assume uh, in the remake it's Bobby's quite clearly yeah. uh, he sets up everything Brenda in this one it's yeah like a savage home alone thing she sets up a kind of tripwire thing uh, a noose to latch onto someone 
using their dead mother as bait. Yeah, they've basically set it up so the station wagon, they've wrapped the wire around it. So when they basically someone's close to where they see their, they've set their mother up, they can start the engine, pr- pretty much hit the gas, and the wheel starts spinning, so drags them like across rocks and all that shit. Yeah, and eventually, I presume, takes them towards the wheel of the car where they get yeah. spinny crushed. Uh, in theory, Which, this is where the wire that Doug picked up comes into play. Yeah, um, very very lucky. <laughs> yeah. If he didn't pick up that bit of wire, they'd be fucked. But their engine blows or something about... Oh, no, it doesn't blow. They've not got any fuel in uh, because Pluto took all the fuel out. He did a little siphon thing uh, earlier on. It's over and done with very quickly. Yeah, as you see, it hit empty. Yeah. Uh, But it creates for a fun scene, at least. It adds a bit of tension, and it allows them to do the uh, other trap, which is really fun. Yeah, uh, the explodey ta- uh, caravan. Yeah, obviously just with Papa Jupiter, because Pluto at this point has been savaged by um, the dog. Yeah, I will say that that dog fucks Pluto up. Like, I know he only bites. He bites his ankle at this point, and he tears. It looks like he tears out the the Achilles heel of Pluto. Yeah, like, you been... see, you see him like full on like flicking this like excess bit of like. Ligament. It got a bit of bone in there as well. Tiny bit of white uh, amongst the red. That that's great. It's probably the best bit of gore in the entire thing. Hmm. I mean, Uh, it's minimal, but it's gruesome. And then I think he goes for his neck, and pretty much takes. Oh no! Uh, At this point, obviously, because he's been attacked, Papa Jupiter goes, "All right, you go back." Oh yeah. And and Papa Jupiter. Jupiter goes to the caravan where all the traps are set up. I should say, he sends Pluto back knowing full well that the dog's still out there. (laughs) Yeah. And then, during while Papa Jupiter's getting ambushed with these traps, Pluto is literally being savaged by Beast. While the rabbit looks on. Yeah, while the rabbit just sits there and is like, good show. Is that rabbit meant to represent something? Or is it just a badass rabbit that doesn't care? I I literally... Maybe it, I I don't know because I'm not the smartest person in film, but it just seems like a badass rabbit to me. I feel like there's some hipster out there somewhere that comes up with the oh it's it's meant to represent innocence of the yeah. um, the, clan. This this, this rabbit symbolises the hope that the family has for surviving this terrible ordeal. Fuck off, some heart major. It's out a there. badass rabbit. Yeah, uh, he gets savaged by beast. I want to say dies. I yeah. Think in my head canon, I think if this was the only film, that's it. Because yeah. he gets his neck ripped out, for yeah, God's he sake. Ha- he has, like, a hefty chunk of his throat torn out, and, like, he is fucking dead. Literally, when I watched this film, I knew that there was obviously a second one, because it's, like, 70s and 80s and stuff. But in my head, I'm like, okay, he's dead. He has to be dead. He's literally had his throat torn out. I would not survive my throat being torn out. And then in the second one, he's like, yeah, I'm good. So, uh, yeah, Pluto's basically left for dead by Papa Jupiter, who runs off with the dog still roaming about. Poor Pluto. Papa Jupiter gets yeah eviscerated, more or less. It's quite fun, actually, watching the amount of shit he goes through without being killed. 
only really topped, I think, by in the remake uh, second film, the second modern film, by Papa Hades, who gets fucking stuff chucked yeah. through him, stabbed, shot. Papa Jupiter really takes a fucking beating. So I, I genuinely can't remember how he dies. Like I know I watched it yesterday, and I'm still like I remember him being dragged across half the desert with, with the car. Dragged rem- halfway across the desert, he's then blown up with a ridiculously big explosion. It's insane. I I thought he wised up to that. I think as soon as he realised the first trap was a trap, I think he I thought he was like, okay, there's probably a trap on this door. So I thought he'd like set it off with actually not being near it. Yeah, I suppose actually because he uh, he stays on the door for a little bit. Yeah. And he, he takes a moment to kind of think through it. Yeah, he's probably thinking that, yeah, it's a trap. I, at least in my, in my head canon, I thought, okay, that's probably what he's done. And then literally like a couple of minutes after that, uh, he's like, you don't see any burns on him whatsoever or anything like that. So I just assumed that he'd like wised up. Yeah, he must have. Uh, so... He must have opened the door then, used that as cover to get behind something. And yeah. then uh, Bobby, I think quite rightly, says we need to double tap him. Yeah. We need to make sure he's definitely dead. Brenda, for some reason, says, no, don't do it. Don't go over. Uh, he, he goes over anyway, Bobby, quite rightly. Me, personally, I'd have done like a perimeter scan first. I'd have gone all the way around uh, just to check where is he, where exactly is his body. Mm-hmm. Because you've got a gun. You've got... You know, distance. Yeah, keep a distance. Uh, and you're in a desert. He's not going to be able to sneak up on you if you go all the way around. This is the only mm-hmm. area where there's actually stuff. Uh, but yeah, he ends up ambushing uh, Bobby. And then I think this is where kind of Wes Craven's signature theme comes in of society falling to savagery. Where mm-hmm. Brenda, one of the more innocent of the lot, along with Doug, murders him pretty brutally. Uh, puts a few hatchets in his back. Oh yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. He she puts an axe in his back, and then obviously when he starts feeling the effects of the axe to the back, she starts just carry on hacking away. Mm. She goes, you know, hacks down and down. Even when he's dead, she like carries on for a bit. And yeah, so that's where kind of West Craven's theme comes in, and that's really the end of their story. Bobby mm-hmm. and uh, Brenda. We then jump over in the last kind of fifteen minutes, I think it was ten minutes. Yeah, to like ten minutes. Yeah, the last ten minutes to Doug. The order comes through just before all that goes down by Papa Jupiter to kill the baby. Yeah. Uh, from which Mars picks up at the little camp for the clan. There's Mars, there's Mama, and there's Ruby. Mama, who doesn't get involved in anything really. I yeah. think she just sleeps through the entire thing. I think Ruby hears that same message from uh, Papa and then picks her, uh, uh, she's been released from the chains at this point she cracks Mama in the skull with the hammer and takes the baby and replaces it with the piglet oh, did she and then, crack her in the skull? I didn't yeah, yeah. Get, oh right okay I do know what happens to her then stunning Yeah. oh she's, she's not dead she literally it hits her in the head, takes the baby, puts the piglet in the blanket, and then as Mars is walking up, she hands the blankets to him. He fucks off to go deal with that, 
and then she picks up the baby and runs and then when Mars comes back he asks Mama where's the baby and she's like I don't know and then she's holding her head because she's pissing out with blood Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, she is. She's alive at that point. Uh, I'm almost disappointed. You had a pig in a blanket. It's near Christmas. She couldn't make a single pun. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ruby runs off with the actual baby, and Doug runs after her. I presume. Yeah, thinks that Ruby's kind of running off with the baby, going to kill it or whatever, kidnap it. Uh, they meet up before Mars gets there, and they kind of. Ruby says, "You know, I, you can have the baby." He tries to give it back to Doug. Uh, altercation pricks up between Mars and Doug. Yeah, I think Doug says keep uh, keep her safe and hide. And then Doug basically he sees Mars coming up this large hill, <laughs> hides at the top of it, jumps off with like a large rock and cracks him in the skull. <laughs> they both roll down the hill, and then when it looks like Doug waits for Mars to stand back up on his feet, and then Doug fucks off. Yeah, it's not exactly glorious. Yeah. Uh, especially given the ending, I'd have expected a kind of another double tap situation where it's, yeah, he bashes his brains in with a skull, but no, he just runs off uh, to go find his daughter. And Mars gets up, as you said, and starts running after Doug. Uh, and then somehow Doug gets a knife. No, uh, ru- uh, obviously Mars is chasing after Doug with the knife. Here's a baby cry. He starts ignoring Doug and going after the baby at this point. Doug starts to follow and jumps him. And then Ruby... Throws dust in his face. Yeah, throws dust in his face. He drops the knife. Uh, no. No, yeah, sorry. he goes after Doug. Ruby throws dust in his face. And then he starts running after Ruby. Yeah. Then there's a like scuffle where Mars is literally holding the knife... That gen that generic like Mars is holding the knife over Doug's head sort of thing and starting to push down. He ends up going to the ground. It basically there's a few kind of punches that are thrown uh, yeah. back and forth. Eventually, it looks like Mars is getting the better of Doug. And then Ruby finds a rattlesnake, picks it up, puts it on the back of his neck, lets the rattlesnake bite him, obviously, and then throws the rattl- rattlesnake away. Uh, Mars falls back, obviously being bitten and poisoned. I don't know how Rattlesnake Villain works, if it works instantly, but that was enough to like incapacitate Mars completely. That gives Doug the chance to pick up the knife and literally just like how ha- uh, Hammer House of Horror, like full on, just full on, <laughs> stab him in the stomach and chest. Yeah, it goes back to the whole breaking of innocence thing, where Doug loses everything and just stabs him more than he needed to he, he did not him. lose everything he lost he lost three family members but he still got his baby his fucking dog <laughs> the badass dog and two uh, possibly the daughter the sister that he was having an affair with and little Bobby don't get me wrong he's lost a lot in a few hours if that but yeah, it ends on Doug's face. He kind of goes from expression of hatred to, I don't know, a remorse over stabbing this guy. Something. He kind of looks at his actions of what he's done, but I've always got it in my head. It's adrenaline, kicks in, yeah. And this guy is a murderer. He tries to kill your kid. It's justified. Wait, was that the end for you? 
Yeah, that was the end for me. It just ended on his face, kind of stabbing the guy, and then he he, he looked. He went from angry to sad. Is this going to be another hostile situation where someone else quite, has got stuff that makes sense? Quite possibly, because it it wasn't an extended ending or it wasn't anything like like especially different. It was literally just a bit extra where they all meet back up towards where the caravan was. Dog bringing Ruby, and obviously when they all hug each other and whatnot, Lynn holds out a hand to Ruby to kind of like say, yeah, you're in with us sort of thing. And they that literally where it ends. It oh, ends of like yeah. look, the camera on their hands holding. I didn't get that. No, I got him. It just ended on a frame of his face. Yeah, <laughs> this is the exact hostile situation all over again where the sequel's barely explained by one of the endings sent out and perfectly explained by the other. Yeah. Uh, like, it seems like they were getting friendly at towards the end of my version anyway. Yeah, I from what I think, from what I understand about the other ending, I think I prefer my one. Yeah. Where it just ends on his face kind of brutally murdering him and it's left kind of up to the audience as to what happens after. I, I think that... I'd prefer that ending. If it's pretty much kind of just spelt out for me, then I'd be like, okay, that's a bit shit. But at least my ending, it kind of leads into the second one. Whereas I, I prefer that kind of ending if you're if you're gonna make a sequel that kind of needs that little bit then add that little bit i do wonder was it filmed after they confirmed a sequel and they added that in just to make it kind of yeah this work or they at least added it into different copies of it once they knew they were making the sequel they cut it out originally it's possible like i'm reading the wiki at the moment and it it's literally it's like the film ends with the close-up of doug's face yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I ended on. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I did just see a, a weird cut of it. But either way, it works better into the sequel. But as a standalone, yeah, it, it's going to be better if you get the um, the standard version. Right, go mm-hmm. then. Why do you keep getting these weird extended? Mate, use VNs. They're helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Not VNs. Um, VPNs. VPNs. That's it. The ends is a completely different oh, thing. Oh god, it's bizarre American versions that are giving you the fun ending, the, the yeah, uh, the, the happy ending. Yeah, it's the uh, well, I wouldn't say the happy ending for the hostile one, but well, I mean, she kidnaps a kid. It's yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we're going to transition into the second film about as awkwardly as my film does. Yep. So it's once again filmed and directed by Wes Craven and starring. So it's a, it's a difficult one kind of picking out who the uh, big stars in for this because the actual the survivors, once again, the um, it's not a family this time. It's a group of motocross bike yeah. a sort of mechanic, sort of racers, kind of an F1 thing, a Triumph uh, T thing. Yeah, they're like motocross, kind of... I, I I don't even know if it sounds like an old-timey thing to say, but they're like hoodlums. They they try and play pranks on each other, and they, they like, fucking destroy shitloads of, like, public property. I wouldn't even say public property. It's like, somehow they've set up cardboard boxes so they can drive into them and stuff like that. I don't, like, 
Yeah, you go from one stereotype of the standard American family to another stereotype of the teenagers, basically teenagers, uh, or young adults, going on a road trip into the middle of nowhere. Uh, Yeah, so starring, it's more so focused again on the actors from the previous film. They're far better than the new cast they bring in. Mm -hmm. So you've got once again coming back as Pluto somehow surviving uh, is Michael Berryman. I'm happy he's back. Mm -hmm. He's great. Uh, I like him playing too much. And once again returning as Ruby slash Rachel is Janice Blythe, who very unfortunately hasn't been in anything else really. As well as at the start, Bobby comes back, who was in a film called Shotgun Assassin, which I really want to watch now. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so on the nose. It's so stupid. I really want to see that. Yeah, Bobby isn't really much in this. He's in it for like the first five minutes, maybe. He's the smart one of the lot. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, I am not going back into that fucking desert. You can fuck off. Really surprised by what they do with this character. It's perfectly believable. Yeah, he sees like he's going to a psychiatrist and all that sort of stuff. It's eight years have passed since then. They... Yeah, it, it stays concurrent with actual yeah. time. They make it exactly like it has. They shove it in your face almost. It's like it's been eight years, and then they repeatedly tell you it's been eight years. Bobby's still going to therapy and stuff like that. Therapist, uh, they kind of do flashbacks of the original events. Mm-hmm. going through. That said, I still wouldn't kind of recommend watching these out of order. You can get most of the gist of the first one from the second yeah. one. I just wouldn't recommend watching the second one, to be honest. To be fair, I did watch these out of order. So... Yeah, I mean, it gives you a nice little refresher at yeah. least. It helps. Ruby is living in the city with Bobby and stuff like that now. Uh, she's changed her name to Rachel for some yeah, reason. Yeah, and she's actually quite put together yeah, and she's fixed her teeth. Yeah, she's got... It kind of reminds me, if you've ever played the Dragon Age games, one of the big problems, all the Mass Effect games, one of the big problems I had with those, with characters Liara and Morrigan, they kind mm. of started as um, reclusive scientists or a reclusive uh, witch who lived in the woods mm-hmm. and went from that to being perfectly, you know, etiquette at an extreme. They could manipulate people. They were political yeah. experts. I feel like Ruby's undergone the same kind of transition mm-hmm. for something that should take years and you should still have little cracks. It makes for a more fun character, at the very least. Yeah, like, okay, she's been living in a desert for the first 20-odd years of her life. Maybe when she eats meal, instead of using knives and forks like normal people do, maybe she's still using her hands or... not. Okay, it's been eight years, so I can see that, okay, she's probably got a bit of normality back to her. But there should be like little cracks to kind of like back to where she would obviously had to live so savagely. She's like, she, okay, she's using hands and stuff to eat food. Maybe uh, I don't know. She if she hears like a loud noise, she kind of like gets into a d- defensive position or like there should be little bits in it to kind of lead back to that. But there's literally nothing. When she's back in the desert, she's like. She's the smart person. She's the one that's like, okay, you guys check out that place. You guys go together to check out that one. Yeah, it's it's kind of told to you, not shown to you, is the problem. I mm-hmm. think because yeah, having that little bit of getting into the defensive position, it's really subtle, but it'd be great for her to um, 
know and be used to dangerous situations. I think there's, yeah. there's a point where she goes into a house and there's a raccoon on the top and B starts barking away and she says, oh, it's a raccoon. And the guy says, oh, can you smell it or something? And I think it's implied that, yeah, she can. Yeah. She, she knows what it is because she's eaten them before she's hunted them before and she says no no that's what Beast does to kind of pass it off uh-huh. uh, it really is kind of more telling than showing that yeah if I'd seen more of like things like that I would have been a, a little more forgiving of like everything that happens yeah uh, kind of skimming through the main family again or the at this, this at group this point of friends. The, uh, yeah this group of friends as it is this time around because they have barely any personality to them just um for actual listeners breaking the little fourth wall here because i'm definitely going to edit out the last five minutes we were just desperately trying to figure out which each character was we have a list of them next to the actor names and it got to the point where i had to google the actors to work out who was who yeah, uh, because they have that little personality. <laughs> we were I, trying I, to. We said we could remember two of them, and yeah, Steph I remembered, just about got Cass. Yeah, I remembered the blind one, and I remember her name was Cass. That's literally all I'd remembered. <laughs> and I, I vaguely, I, I really hate to say it, but I vaguely remembered the only thing I could remember had the black guy. Is he had some personality to him? I couldn't remember yeah. his name at all. Great. Really well acted by Willard E. Pugh, who's been in some really great stuff. Colour Purple, he was in mm. a second Robocop film, which I love, even though I know it's occasionally lambasted, and Air Force One with Harrison Ford, of course. To be fair, in this one, there was a lot more faces that I recognised. Like, uh, I don't remember her name, maybe it's Colleen Riley, maybe. I know she's in, like, Sex in the City and... Um, the, she one of uh, the, Tamara the four Stone. people in Sex and the Sea. Yeah, yeah, she's one of the main ones. Oh fucking hell! Uh, that's, that's actually something. Uh, Tamara Stafford, I've seen her in other things, uh, which is Cast the Blind One. So there, there's a few more people in this one that I recognised and kind of went, oh, they're familiar. The, uh, the one like douchebag kind of guy. I remember him from something, but I don't remember his name in this. Um, I don't think I remember him from something specifically. I think it's more he just blends in as generic blonde douchebag. Yeah. It was in every film. Fucking Troll 2 had a generic blonde douchebag. Every film has one. Right, so yeah, this group of friends, they're kind of mechanics, kind of, as we said, motocross racers, and Bobby is this genius that has created a new super fuel that he can shove into bikes, uh, basically, to win these motocross races. And the next motocross race is being held at the murderer clan's desert, where they barely skipped their life last time. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's been eight years. I'd have assumed it had been like, combed over by military and police, so it's probably seen to be safe. Yeah. Deemed safe. Uh, especially with all the people that could be there during the motocross thing. Bobby, though, still doesn't want to go. Quite justifiably, I think. He saw yeah. his sister die. His sister died, he saw his mom die, he saw his dad so burnt alive. Burnt. Yeah, burnt on a fucking cactus. It's a wonder that he's still mentally capable to do anything. And his psychiatrist says he should go. I wouldn't give this advice personally. I think if you've been through a massively traumatic experience, don't fucking go back. If it's at the point where you aren't recovering, 
it's that bad. Leave it. Just ignore it. Yeah, if you are not recovering at all, don't go back. But if you're starting to heal, I'd, I un- I'd understand the kind of idea to kind of like go back, kind of face the fear of it and like see that there's nothing there anymore. You've dealt with the problem or the problem's being dealt with. You can move on with your life. I'd understand that. But if you are seriously like having panic attacks still and things like that, don't don't go back. Maybe it's just my kind of British mentality of a um, get your pain and just shove it deep down where you can't see it. Keep it inside. Let it build up. And yeah, eventually you can have some mental breakdown in your 50s and buy a Lamborghini it, it's, and start. It's literally that story of like when the London raids were going on like during the World War Two. Like obviously Hitler bombing the shit out of London. And people were just like, yeah, yeah, let's just go to work. And then going to work, sitting at their desk desk with like rubble and shit all over it, and then just doing paperwork. And then Hitler going, what the fuck's got... Why can we not, like, demoralise the English people where English people are like, yeah, fuck it. Our place is shit anyway. Fuck it, there we go. Where I live I w- now, to be honest, bombing. I've, I'm sure yeah. it would be an improvement. Yeah. Like, we live in... Uh, well, I live in Birmingham at the moment and if it got hit by a bomb I genuinely probably wouldn't notice it looks like a shithole as is yeah the the nuclear fallout might clean up a thing or two might burn away some of the shit Bobby Bobby smart with his thing I say he keeps his pain he's coping with it but not to the extent where he can go back and he uh, stays where he is safely away from the desert and instead sends Ruby, now going under Rachel, if you said, to go with the motocross people and sell his fuel, which mm-hmm. is apparently worth millions. I yeah. always just assumed you could just go to F1 or Ford or whatever and just say, look, I've got this fuel, I can sell it to you, rather than having to promote it at yeah. a motocross thing. If you, if you make like a super fuel, it's not exactly hard to kind of go, hey, um, I don't know. Jaguar Land Rover, do you want to be like, you know, do you want to put your name behind our fuel line or something like that? So, you know, we can sell our fuel with your cars and give it that extra bit of a boost or we go to Formula One or whatnot. It genuinely, it doesn't seem like it wouldn't be that hard to kind of go, yeah, we can make shitloads off this. Especially if you, it's that good. Yeah, if, if it's, it's that good. amazing and just... Get a meeting together, say, look, I've got this fuel that will help you win F1. Do you want it? And sell it for millions. You get loads off it. Uh, But instead, what they do is they send Rachel Ruby, who I'm pretty sure only Bobby knows is Ruby, knows her origin at this point. They've heard the story, the rest of them. It's kind of like a, not a folk tale, but it's kind of turning into an urban legend kind of thing. Yeah. For the area at this point, people don't quite believe that's how it really happened, or they're not sure the exact events. They've heard stuff from police reports and the like, but it's turning into more a story than an actual um, set-by-set event. Yeah, but, yeah. I know at some point they basically they all kind of get ready to set off on a bus, and then Ruby kind of goes, "Actually, there's one more thing I need to get." if we're going through this desert, and then she goes to a dog pound and picks up Beast from the first film. 
Yeah, she uh, parks outside, and an old woman who I don't think has ever given her name or anything, who currently holds beast and like yeah, pound or something. She just whistles him over, and she keeps saying, "Don't whistle him, don't whistle him." I don't know why. Did she not want him to go? Was there like money being exchanged, or I don't know? Maybe, maybe like a it, maybe it's like a Winter Soldier effect where if you whistle, it sets him off on this murder machine sort of thing. <laughs> you know that that's probably why. He was kind of thinking, don't don't get this dog out without holding him. For fuck's sake, he'll kill someone on the way over yeah. to the bus. Don't do that, Jesus. One person walks past, that's it. It's a massacre. The whole city's dead. I do... Like, in the list of, like, credits in this, Brenda from the first film is listed. Do you actually see her in this? I know you see her in flashbacks, but is that it? I think it's the same with Doug. You see her in flashbacks. Oh, right, okay. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Bobby's the only one who makes a, and Ruby obviously, uh, the only ones who make a real reappearance. And Pluto. Yeah, I do. I do want to say Bobby in this looks like a 30 year old man hanging around with a group of like 16, 17, 18 year olds. I had that same problem with Ruby actually. See, for uh, me, it seemed like Ruby was like parental, like guidance sort of thing like she was there just to make sure they don't fucking blow anything up or don't don't do anything stupid but why would you send the savage woman on this trip yeah again it comes back to that if you're going to sell us fuel do it normally dragon's den style or at the very least just get a representative don't send ruby to the traumatic desert again yeah like i get it she's probably had the most experience dealing with this sort of stuff and whatever but if Bobby's like okay she was literally a savage for the first like 20 years of her life maybe don't send her back to that environment you get kind of Vietnam flashback she goes all white and just kills not even that like don't send her back to this environment while trying to look after a group of 17 year olds because she's been civilized for like 8 years but she's been a savage for 20 of them that's a fair point. She's not exactly going to be the parental guidance yeah, figure. Yeah. Or at least in Bobby's mind, it should be like, she'd probably not be the best per- like parental guidance sort of person. But either way, that's what they decide upon. The characters are introduced, they get all on the bus, along with Beast. As we said, other than a couple of them, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's pretty much just Cass, you know, because she's blind. Uh, Ruby does actually have a personality and she's evolved a little Yeah, over the years. She's probably the best character in the whole thing mm-hmm. uh, overall. Unfortunately, she has a bit of a crap send-off, but yeah, it's nowhere near as good as the remake send-off did for she, Ruby. Did she actually die? Yeah, you might have missed it. If you blinked, you missed it. She uh, gets her head cracked open by... Uh, yeah, a rock you- that's on the ground. The two that walk off, I don't think they even saw her die. They just leave her to rot, presumably. I think, oh, I'm sure she can get back fine. Oh, shit. Yeah, she does. Okay. Wow. I genuinely thought it was like, oh, she's not dead. She's just like, if if Bobby can fall backwards down a hill and hit his head on a rock and get back up and run away, maybe, yeah, she's hit her head on a slightly bigger rock. If Pluto can have his throat rips out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I was genu- I genuinely thought, okay, she's alive, but she'll turn up again in later in the film. And then, obviously, by this point, I'm bored of the film anyway, so I was like, mm, she hasn't turned back up, fine. 
Yeah, uh, the bus carries on, and once again, unlike the remake, the clan, or not really a clan at this point, there's two of them. Yeah. The uh, the duo, the deadly duo of Pluto and uh, Reaper, uh, who I don't think was ever mentioned in the first film. Nope. I mean, he's his uncle, I think. Yeah. Literally, it's like, there's a small flashback to the first film at some point. Uh, I think when Pluto was talking to Ruby, and um, he's like, yeah, uh, Papa Jupiter's older brother was there to patch me back up. And it's literally the scene where he has his throat torn out and he's lying on the floor kind of like bleeding out. And it's like, he kind of goes, yeah, yeah, uh, he was there to patch me up as soon as that happened. It's not that uh, he's not mentioned. I could live with that. It's that during the speech that the gas station attendant uh, went on about the granddad, uh-huh. uh, Pop Jupiter's dad went through, he never mentioned him then. Yeah. Which is like, so blatantly ridiculous. I think he mentioned that he has, has had other kids. I think he mentioned that at the, the start of the first one. But I think he was like, it's only Papa Ju- uh, Jupiter that was like the pain in the ass. I just come to wonder if like, Papa Jupiter smacked one of his brothers over the head to give him that huge wound and just concussed him into being a nutter. It's possible. This whole setup for this one was a bit weird. Like, obviously, obviously, Pluto coming back from what seemed to be instant death and have it written to be like, oh yeah, he was fine, he's alive the whole time. He came over and helped me when I was bleeding out when he saw the dog run away instead of I don't know, killing the people that tried to kill me. He was just like, yeah, it's fine. Plot-wise, so they are in the bus, and as I said, again, the cannibals' deadly duo don't set up a roadblock either this time. They just get lucky in that the bus happens to catch a rock. It wasn't the brake fluid, it was the fuel line. Yeah. Catch a rock as they uh, drive in this huge tour bus. Uh, Because they took a shortcut, because... They forgot about daylight savings. Yeah, literally, like all ten people on the bus forgot about daylight savings, and then they decided to take a shortcut to kind of claim that hour back. Yeah, it's like and... a shortcut through the clan's original territory. So it's just these staggering coincidences building up and up and up, which is too much for me. Daylight savings day, no one remembers it's daylight savings. You happen to be in that same desert. You happen to go down the same road. They. They fixed they well they patched the leaking fuel line with chewing gum. Uh, one of yeah. them's like a mechanic, and he's the one that fixes it with chewing gum. He's like, it won't last, but it'll hold for a short time. That's another thing. I, I assumed, given that they're motocross drivers and they've got mechanics obviously with them, they'd have mm-hmm. tools to actually do stuff. Yeah, they'd have at least duct tape, which has got to be better than chewing gum. I mean, it holds it for a bit. Guy's yeah. clearly talented. It breaks down again. What as they're driving past like wooden shacks? Yeah, with a little kind of mining uh, setup, temporary yeah, accommodation. I think it's got miners. like a well and stuff like that. And then that's where Pluto turns up. Uh, basically, right, uh, Ruby kind of sends everyone into the houses to kind of search for things that they need. Which mostly, if fuel. if you're on a if you're on a bus journey. I think you'd have the stuff that you'd need anyway. 
but they literally just send them in to kind of look things over. Yeah, I mean, they try fod off because obviously they brought a load of fuel that Bobby's made, and they say, oh, no, that can't go into the bus because... Yeah, because it'll fucking explode. Explode. Regardless, I'd have assumed mechanics would have brought spare fuel, just something. Mm-hmm. Like, about you're going through a desert, it's got to occur to you at some point that, yeah, we probably want backup stuff, we probably want, <clears throat> you know, an extra spark plug, we want an extra... I'm just showing off my level of knowledge of mechanics here. Extra engine, <laughs> extra wheel. What else goes into a uh, car? Fuck no, extra, mate. I'm, more, I'm bla- more brake fluid? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. All, all that good stuff. Uh, a mechanic, I'd like to think, would have the foresight to grab all this when going through rocky desert terrain. Especially in a bus. You know, mm-hmm. you're not in a 4x4, you're not even in a car. It's quite fragile, the underbelly. Uh, your suspension's very low. You might hit something. Be careful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Break down. Eventually fix it up a bit. Drive to this mining town. There's no big uh, build-up to this one. There's no uh, tension increase where Bob, you know, gets captured and yeah, you don't know what's going to happen to him until the cross, the big payoff of him burning alive. It just happens. Pluto just appears, really. Yeah. I do want to say Pluto in this one continues to be a little bit of a bitch. Like, he attacks Ruby from behind and she still manages to kick his ass by herself. Ruby's a badass. Yeah. She fights him off, he runs off, and basically she goes outside saying, hey, I've just been attacked by this person. I think at this point she's like, that story that you told on the bus about the the family that lived in the desert yeah, I was the daughter that was in that family. And they're like, nah, you're fucking full of shit. And then about... Yeah, I can't remember what convinces them. What is it? Pluto comes back and steals one of their bikes and they're like, oh shit, that guy's real. And then that's where it all starts kicking off. It's one thing I quite enjoyed. It's more action-y. Yeah. This one, uh, it's the same really with the modern ones. The second one was very much more action than horror. Especially with like Ruby doing Matrix-style backflips from a second story down to the ground. Props to the both stunt actress or the actual actress if she did it. Yeah. Quite impressive choreography. Like, uh, at least in the first one, it was her was Like, you were being hunted by the family and, or, or the clan, sorry. And, or, like, things happened because of that. Whereas this one, it's like, oh, we're fighting back. It's more like a I wouldn't say like a diehard, but it was like a like one of those kinds of action films where it's like very clearly bad guys, very clearly good guys. You're rooting for the good guys. That's it. And the bad guys get the crap kicked out of them. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. They really get like, bollocked on. Yeah, uh, and they get lucky occasionally and kill the odd person. Do you know what? It's kind of like uh, a Friday the Thirteenth film where Jason gets the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, every other scene, but gets lucky occasionally. I wanna, One of the later ones. I want to point out, it kind of disgraces the first film because it's like, okay, people in the first film, like Pluto and everything like that, they are bitches compared to Reaper. Cause oh, yeah, yeah. It, Reaper's a badass. A yeah, Re- yeah, Reaper literally just, like, at one point, he walks in, picks up a woman, like, crushes her, like, spine and rib cage and stuff kills her with just his bare hands 
throws a corpse to the side and then walks up to the next one and kills that guy. Yeah, kind of like um, oh, the the big creature from Resident Evil 2. Mm. Like in Terminator style, big trench coat. A Reaper, he's he dressed quite well actually. I quite like the costume department, so yeah. stuff on this. And you can tell that the budget's increased at least. Prosthetics wipe, his Reaper looks quite cool. Yeah. Uh, with his little head bulged out. No, it's not modern standards, I admit. But for the time and for the budget, which I believe uh, they actually couldn't continue the filmmaking process eventually because there wasn't enough money to continue this. They actually uh, ran out. Oh, right. Prosthetics, very good. Uh, obviously, Pluto doesn't need any. Mostly, I think, sustained by the acting. Yeah. Got to be said. It's not all just looks with Pluto. He he acts great. Michael, um, Michael Berryman. Absolutely stunning actor. Uh, it shouldn't be just typecasters. He looks a bit weird. He really can push forward any character he's given. Uh, it's almost, almost lets me kind of push aside the fact that he should definitely be dead. So, yeah, following this, uh, quite a lot happens. Pluto has the shit kicked out of him at every opportunity, multiple times. Yeah. He's, yeah, a complete pussy. One on one with people, which the bad guys should always really win. Yeah. A one-on-one fight, or you lose the tension completely, but Pluto gets the crap kicked out of him. Yeah, he steals one of their bikes and drives off with it, so two of the guys uh, chase after him. Um, the Reaper is set... At, you haven't seen Reaper at this point, but he's set up traps along the kind of route that um, Pluto's taking. One of them gets through, one of them falls behind and gets caught in these traps. He sees it, and he's like, ha, you didn't fall for that one. Yeah, and kind of this giant mace. Yeah, thing. it's like a large morning star with like, it's like a, a just a, it's a generic wooden lug with loads of spikes hanging from it. And it he trips it so it swings. Uh, he dodges it. Well, he literally lies underneath it and then catches it once it's lost its momentum sort of thing. And I just want to point out, he catches it by the spike. I mean, the spikes are comically big. Yeah. These are like comically big and they're clearly sharp because obviously they've gone through and cut this wooden lug and he catches it by the spike and he's like, haha, you didn't catch me with that one. And then he waits for yeah, a bit. He waits a couple of seconds and then a large like boulder falls off the other side of the cliff and crushes him to death. Which is just funny. Yeah. To be honest, it's, it's nothing two ways about it. it I hope they're meant for that to be humorous is it's what it was and it was a clearly styrofoam boulder yeah, yeah, one yeah. Uh, which again I forgive budget yeah. fair enough yeah. it's what you can manage the actor could have probably done better actually making it look like a real rock because it, it kind of hit him on the head almost like expect a cartoon sound effect to come up yeah he kind of like you see it from above so it hits him and it looks like he carries it for a couple of seconds and then like lies down on the ground and then puts it on top of himself. <laughs> yeah, I like expecting kind of sty- uh, xylophone Tom and Jerry thing. What, yeah. what are they called? The, um, yeah, where he kind of folds in on himself. He dies from that. I think it was the Reaper like knocked the rocks apart and chucked it down. Maybe. So it must have happened. Like, the Reaper heard him shouting out, I survived, which in itself... Again, cliches, if you make them, they're not cliches. It's a bit of a cliche, the whole, um, I survived, and then, mm-hmm. nah, take this. Uh, I mean, the other one caught in a net, I think. No, no. He catches, no. catches Pluto. Yeah, he yeah, catches Pluto, 
gets him hostage. So again, made Plato a bitch. And then By himself. Yeah. And then Reaper comes up, knocks him out, and then that's kind of the. I don't know whether he was planning to kill him later or keep him like fresh until he's ready to eat him or something like that. But he just knocks him unconscious, puts him in like a cave, and then leaves. Yeah, and then uh, the rest of this is kind of an action film. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the other uh, people at the camp don't know this has gone on. They're actually quite nonchalant. Yeah. About the whole situation. They're just wandering about still. Yeah, they wait until nightfall before they go, ha, we're kind of worried now. It's a consistent theme, at least. Yeah. Same with Bobby. They didn't give a fuck. They're kind Well, I say they gave a fuck. I mean, they still had time to have sex and have a shower and all that sort of stuff. So they're not that worried. Yeah, and then they get killed off one by one. It actually turns into a kind of Friday the 13th horror-esque thing with the Reaper going round. Uh, killing them. Mm. Uh, Ruby as well, I know she runs off looking for them, and there's a ridiculously big crossbow bolt that goes through one of the bikers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, the tallest, tallest biker that was there was, uh, I think his name was Hulk or some shit. Oh god, no, really? Yeah. And basically, they try to, es- uh, try to escape because uh, they see Reaper kind of stalking them. Um try to escape by getting onto a bike and then like this ridiculously long like spear comes through his chest and then uh, Ruby runs away in like horror I guess yeah because Ruby fell off the bike mm-hmm. she went over a pebble or something yeah <laughs> and it was <laughs> it wasn't a rock you could see it was just enough force somehow chuck her off uh, then he turned around and said I'm gonna save you kind of um medieval knight style and started charging back full throttle on the bike and then the spear went through his chest mm-hmm. and it, it is ridiculously big it's unnecessarily big it's like a harpoon fired from like a ballista yeah if he's built one of them then all good to him to be fair but but hulk uh doesn't go into any rage he just drops down dead yeah very dead. <laughs> yeah he just takes a spear to the chest and yeah that's the end of hulk um and then, if I remember correctly, big guy Reaper uh, goes back to the mine where everyone's been hiding at the time. There's you steps off, you get Pluto with the dog again. They get reunited. Yeah. Pluto's obviously uh, scared of Beast now because he's got his throat ripped out and uh, Ruby taunts him with that. Mm-hmm. A few times, Pluto he is just useless for the entire thing. Poor guy. What have you done to him? There is a woman that literally can be cut out of this film completely um it's I think how it, many people could be cut out of this film completely it, it's to be fair most of them could be um uh it's the uh, other black woman I, I genuinely can't remember her name in this literally she's yeah, she's, she's uh, a nothing character like she she doesn't have any backstory nothing she dates um She's dating Foster. Basically, this Sue woman's dating Foster. They're in the bus having sex. For some reason, it needs to show you that. And then it goes to uh, one of the women in the shower. And literally, right after the dude's finished having sex with his girlfriend, he bumps into her in the shower and he's like, Yeah, I've got this thing. And like, he starts trying to hit on this other woman 
his girlfriend like hears him, runs off, and then he goes back to the bus thinking that's where she's run off to, and gets dragged underneath and killed. Yeah, it's over and done with quite quickly, and it's just bizarre. It's why he hit on the girl. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, it seems like they've been friends. Like all these people have been friends for a long time. So, has this been a thing that he's been working up to? all together or is it literally just like ah spur of the moment screw it I've just had sex let's have sex again yeah I don't. I, it's something to kill an evening with I, I genuinely don't understand like why some of this part was in the film like I understand okay you need to set a bit of tension and whatnot, but or you need to find a way to split people up but it just seems like it was like a ham fisted way to go yeah Whatever, let's just get them split up. So, yeah, that, that blonde girl uh, goes looking for Foster, uh, finding uh, his body, and then the Reaper shows off his own little Hulk strength, crushes her mm-hmm. in his arms. That was just quite fun, but ridiculous. Crushes her in his arms, and then the black woman returns to the camp that they'd all set up. Then Re- Reaper bursts through a window and slits her throat with the machete. Literally, there's that. three deaths that literally happen back to back to back. Yeah, concurrently. Yeah, I, mean, I quite enjoyed the crushed one. Sue's death's quite fun when mm-hmm. she's thrown through the window. Foster's death here, pull through a bus. Yeah, I don't know if it's a butchery thing. A lot of this is kind of glossed over. It's very fast in the camera work. Yeah, especially Foster's just dragging under a bus. And obviously, yeah, Pluto, still running about, manages to pin Rachel down, uh, but is once again bested by the beast. Yeah. And chased away like the pussy he is. And then Ruby tries to chase after Beast, but again, Reaper being a trap-savvy man, sets like Hulk up on like a, I don't know, was it like a swing sort of thing? Because like, I remember nothing being there then Hulk's corpse kind of swinging, slamming into her, and that's how she trips and hits her head on a rock. I don't know if he placed the rock there. He'd be like, alright, if Hulk comes out from this angle, I don't know if it was like a uh, mathematical thing in his head. He's like, alright, this angle hits her with that kind of force. She falls back. Her head will hit exactly at this point. I don't know if the rock was just supposed to be there, or if... If it oh, was it's like... fucking impressive. It's almost like she ran onto a big red X, and that yeah, that's where we that's where we sent Hulk off. Uh, I'm sure he must have practiced it over and over again. I'd love to see what that was like having dummies or having poor Pluto run up and down on a little <laughs> mat beneath him. But it was like... why Pluto's so shit. He's been going for concussions day after day, having these catapults tested on him. It was really weird. Like it was either sheer dumb luck that he managed to kill Ruby by like uh, dropping the corpse of Hulk and slamming into her so she hits her head on a rock or it was literally just meant as a scare tactic and she just stumbled, hit her head and then managed to pass his way into a kill. I've got to go probably probably the second I think it's like they're I, trying I, to pull off. I genuinely hope so, just so it was like <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just so he doesn't kind of go, he's a mathematical genius, but he's also this, like, savage moron. <laughs> yeah, for the rest of the film, he's portrayed like an idiot, but he creates yeah. all these traps. Like, 
there's a point where uh, the blind woman is climbing a rope, and instead of climbing up after her, he literally just stands at the bottom shaking the rope and going, <laughs> and I'm like, that's probably not something a mathematic genius will uh, do. <laughs> That won't get you. Yeah, I was just remembering back. It, yeah, he was just shaking the rope, wobbling it. This, this is literally where I woke up and I was like, this is fucking stupid. Uh, quickly pass over Pluto's death, I suppose. Very much like uh, Mercury in the last film. He's pushed off a cliff by Beast. Beast, another kill added to his name. Pluto's death, the last of the uh, cannibal family, is the uncle, Uncle Reaper, uh, who's chasing after yeah little blind uh, she cats through the uh, finds a shack. trap door in the fridge and starts to climb down she goes down she finds like the corpses of all her friends and stuff like that well she feels them and then she starts hearing obviously reaper come down the the ladder where the trap door is and she stone like she walks over to like this like shelf of just jars of stuff and she manages to pick the one that had acid in it yeah I mean for all she knows that could have been just a glitter jar yeah it could literally just be like I don't know a, a generic uh, jar with a brain in it or something for all she knew but yeah she throws it hits him right in the face and then she starts to run down this like mine shaft where she finds a rope that goes up to the well that's in the um yeah kind of half mine shaft half well thing i genuinely thought at some point okay maybe he's going to like pull the rope and it's going to snap the the lug and obviously the rope will fall and then uh, cuz the how it looks on the mine shaft it looked like there's not ladders but there's like wooden beams sticking out like every like foot or so I genuinely thought, okay, she's going to hold onto that or grab onto that and start like climbing like a ladder. Yeah, the rope would snap or something, or at least yeah. he'd start pulling it down and she'd start yeah. going down with him instead of twirling it about like a fucking wand. Yeah, he literally just like wobbles it a bit and then he kind of goes... Ugh. I don't know if he's going to do this straight face this bit. Yeah, he, he genuinely... He doesn't like taunt her with like words he just does like a bass moan at at her where they run around a maypole with uh, little ropes he basically does like a little dance with the thing (laughs) as she continues to climb up Uh, she has some trouble I think when she gets all the top but she just puts out a hand and uh, a guy who was looking for her for a while couldn't find her her. Yeah, her boyfriend like realizes there's a dumb, stupid moan coming from the well. Then he goes down to look and obviously finds her at the almost at the top and reaches out and grabs her hand and pulls her up. Yeah, which uh, works fine. She gets out. And yeah. Then, and there's a smart bit in it where he cuts the the guy at the top cuts the rope and he's like, "Okay, is there another way out?" And she's like, "Yeah, it's a trap door in that house over there." And they're like, okay, let's get the fuck away from here as quick as we can then. Or they they set up a trap on the bus. Oh, that was it. They set up a trap on the bus while he's trying to climb out of this um, mine shaft. Yeah, they use the uh, super fuel, I think it was called, S1 yeah. or something. Uh, shove it all in the bus, ready to kind of set it on fire. Quite similar to the match system from the first film. 
Yeah, they've set up like a torch that's attached to a bit of rope and they've basically got this super fuel from outside, put a hole in the bottom and dragged it back onto the bus so there's like a fuel line going into the bus so it can explode. Yeah. Uh, Which, uh... I don't remember why he runs towards the bus. For some reason he runs towards the bus, obviously sees the large fucking thing of super fuel in there, starts to back away. They pull the rope and then there's a bit where it's like, oh, it did the did the plan fail? And then like three seconds after the flame goes up. Yeah, flame blows. Uh, he's set on fire. It's a bit third degree burns all over Reaper. Yeah, he's caught in the explosion, which is a fucking huge explosion. Yeah, bigger then, than the fucking camper van from the last one. Yeah. And then he's still alive, even though technically he should be in pieces. Uh, he comes out of the wreckage covered in fire. And then a still, I've got to give him props for his tenacity. While on fire, he tries to kill them again. Uh, yeah, props for tenacity immediately taken away for his general stupidity and ineptitude yeah. as he falls for... down the mine shaft. Yeah, he falls down a mine shaft, very Tom and Jerry esque. I was expecting a Wilhelm scream, to be honest. Yeah, and then hits the bottom. Obviously, died. And then the end of the film is literally the two survivors like hugging it out. Then the dog runs up and they start walking kind of off into the sunrise. Yeah, following the road back home sort of thing. So is that the point when you realise that uh, Ruby was dead? Yeah, no, I, literally li- the entire film from that point I was like, okay, she's going to turn up. And then obviously when the film ends, I was like, maybe they're going to go pick up Ruby. Maybe that maybe that's what they're going to do. Because they haven't seen her. They didn't know she's dead. That's one bit that did annoy me, because they've basically just abandoned her. She could have yeah. fell, broke her ankle, and have left her to starve. Maybe it was something that I didn't notice. But I don't know, maybe it's something that I missed during like part of the film. Maybe it's like not explicitly said that she's dead but maybe it's like kind of heavily hinted that she's dead but literally in my head I was like okay she's hit she's fallen over and hit a rock like in the first film there's much worse that happens a dude survives an explosion at the end of this film and he still walks out and he's on fire but he's fine so I'm like okay she's fallen over and hit her head on a rock so maybe she's fine and then it turned out she's actually dead Maybe they did run out of budget, and that they meant to do more with her, but thought, oh fuck, we've got nothing that's, left. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's because they ran out of the budget, and they were just like, okay. Kind of tying up plot out, uh, tying up plots, and going, mm. yeah, we can kill her off here. That was the easiest way of doing it. I don't know, I'd have to look into it, but I could see that being the case. Yeah, for me, that's that makes the most sense, just because... I don't know, it seemed like a very shit way for her to go out. She was fighting Pluto off alone. And yeah, trips and falls on a rock, more or less. Well, catapulted with a corpse, but uh, something that the uh, Bobby survives in the first film with no repercussions, really. Yeah. It, it got a bit annoying. No? But he doesn't even have a scar, does he, in this one? Nothing. He's a picture of fun. health. Physical health, not mental. So... Moving on to the remakes then, uh, Wes Craven less involved, certainly with the first one. I think he was a producer. Mm-hmm. Often I think they just give you that because they have to. Director, we have 
actually uh, one of my favourites. I, I probably hack director in some cases, but I do really like mm. some of his stuff. Uh, Alexandra Aja. Aja. I'm terrible Fuck with us. names. He directed Piranha 3D, which I love, and I'm a huge Killer Crocodile fan. Watch Rogue, all the uh, Abyss films, all the like Placid stuff. I love them. And he directed a film called Crawl, which came out I think two years ago, produced by Sam mm. Raimi, uh, which is about Killer Crocodiles in Florida. You remember trailer for that one? There was like a huge flood in the basement. There were a couple of crocodiles, uh, and the dad's got like a broken leg. It's really fun. It's like an hour and a half. It's probably rubbish, but a bit. Uh, so this one you've got starring the family are a far more um, center centered in this one. They've got more personality and less time is spent on the actual clan yeah. of cannibals. In this one, it, it's yeah shifting the paradigm quite harshly towards the family, uh, which I think it works in its benefit to an extent. Yeah, I mean, to me. In a horror film, you always run a route for the... You don't want to root for the serial killer or the, the murderers that are going around. So you want to be like, okay, we want these people to survive and you want to see them survive. Whereas in the first... Yeah, I'd, I'd say the original two, you kind of didn't really want to see anyone survive. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, I think the first Hills I liked, the remake, 2006 one, I think it's genuinely a really good film. Yeah. Great film. I really loved it. I think principally so characterization-wise, best acting done by, I think, Aaron Stanford, who played Doug. Yeah. Uh, he's in the 12 Monkeys series, yet to see it. I love the film. I'm in 12 Monkeys. Unfortunately, uh, I haven't got around to watching that. Uh, Little Bob as well, far better in this one. Yeah. Uh, played by Dan Bird, who, he was in Easy A, which is an Stone film from 2010. It's pretty good. Uh, he's also in a film, A Cinderella Story, apparently. Uh, Not seen that one. The only, really, of the clan, the only killer that's given any proper screen time, except for, um, I think it's Pluto, his name, but Sloth from the Goonies, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I want a headcat in it. It's actually Sloth that was just dumped. I said, what was he, who was he dumped with? Which kid took him home? Chunk. Yeah, I like to think that Chunk took him home. His mum and dad said, no, get this thing the fuck out of our house. Got the police to take him away, and they just dumped him in the middle of the desert. To be fair. happened to find these people. I was pretty tired during the last couple of like films that I watched. I did genuinely kind of fall asleep at some point during this one. I did go back and watch what I'd missed. But when I'd woken up, I literally saw... I was like, did I put the Goonies on at some point? Because I genuinely was like, okay, is this sloth? Uh, yeah, it, it's almost pitch for pitch perfect. Uh, yeah, the only other real characterised uh, villain... Beyond the visual point, you think all of them have really nice prosthetics. Yeah. And you can take apart some of their personality from that alone. But the only one who kind of speaks and has more character is, um, I think he's called a Lizard, uh, played by Robert Joy, who is joyful. He really is great. Yeah. This, uh, he's in a film, Atlantic City, and a whole new story. Her acting across the board here is really good. The people who play Lynn and Bloody Hell, Brenda especially, they're far better. They're actual different characters, you can tell. Got different aspects of their personality, where in the last one they kind of moulded together. Mm-hmm. You can quite tell them apart here. It's quite easy. Little Bob as well, he's his own character, beyond being an idiot. And Big Bob, I feel like he just took his character to the nth degree, which really served well. He's, he's, he's a prop, really. Yeah, more than a character to some extent. He's the kind of the wise and mentor who you need to kill off early. 
so he can't be the hero and you can have the underdog come off. Yeah. Uh, and take him to the nth degree, it kind of rises the stakes. He's a lot more competent in this. Uh, he fights back a lot more. Not well, obviously. <laughs> he fails uh, to get away. He doesn't have a heart attack in the middle of the road, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he feels like more of a threat, at least. This one, it starts off uh, again with the gas station attendant. And as I said before, it's a different dynamic this time between the gas station attendant and the clan than there was in the first one. I very much prefer this one. Mm-hmm. The only qualm I have with it is I don't know how they set up the deals. Oh, actually, don't know who actually, they say. this one started a little different than the other ones, didn't it? it oh, no, that that's the point, yeah. It's literally... Uh, so, uh, a group of scientists uh, are checking like radiation levels in the area, and uh, you don't see anything. You don't see anyone really, but you just see a fucking pickaxe come out of nowhere and like crack one of them in a skull, and another one like it, it goes through his chest, and he starts like hammering the ground with the corpse still on the pickaxe, and it's basically a, a load of gore up front. So you know what you're getting into, and then it kind of floats over to the family, and pretty much the same story as the first one. I think I mentioned during Hostel that the perfect way for me to start a horror film uh, of this kind of nature, where it's a load of monsters killing people. Same with kind of the killer thing with Scream. They did it in Cube as well, very well. Is where you have kind of a mini film, kind of a short film that kind of deconstructs your big film, the major themes whatever happens in the rest of it and just place it into this small section to yeah kind of give the audience uh, a hint on what they're getting into yeah tell them yeah this is the threat this is you know uh what they can kill this is what they can do and then we'll introduce the characters to go up against it it gives immediate tension it lets you know what the rules of the world are it lets you know uh, how it's going to go down, really. It lets you start speculating as well on who's going to live, who's going to die, what's going to happen to them precisely. Yeah. I think it's the best way of starting a film like this. I, too, prefer this kind of open than kind of any other, like, any slow kind of build. would. It's not what you're in a horror film to kind of see. I, it, you, you know what you're getting into with a horror film, so you don't want to be waiting, like, half an hour just to get to the main bit if you start out with a bit and then it takes a bit to build up to the next scene you can kind of i don't know i wouldn't say accept it but uh, you kind of i don't know it kind of sets you off on the right foot yeah yeah it sets the tone yeah more or less and i think even better than that in some ways the credit sequence i absolutely loved i think it's genius i think this one really can claim to be more of a true story than the um shawnee bean based tale Mm-hmm. Uh, to some extent, unfortunately, Shawnee Bean is a legend. Uh, fascinating, but hey, this one, I could see it happening. I definitely see it happening. I mean, I know uh, during the Cold War, the Americans had set off nukes in the middle of the desert that have military members, privates, that have them stand well within blast radius. I think the British did it as well. And we didn't really care for their well being. You know, we let them die off before we started paying out the uh, lawsuits. Hmm. We never really had much of a care for our own troops, so I can't imagine there'd be any care for some mining town Yeah, if they refused to move along. And yeah, it'd be hushed, it'd be shoved under the rug. I could see this happening, genuinely. And there's a horrific um, sequence during the credits, or the opening credits, of... Was it actual deformities that people have had, or was it um, 
I, prosthetics still. I, I think it might have been actual deformities. Because it looked genuine. Some of them, definitely. If I, yeah, I imagine all of them then. It was, it was brilliantly done. And it really sets the kind of differing um, family up of the clan. Yeah. It sets how different the clan is to the original. It's a lot more monstrous. A lot of the uh, clan members, they are purely animalistic. They look far more brutal, far more monstrous. Uh, as we said, Sloth from the Kudanese, he's not a looker. Not a, not, hey. I'm not even going to let you go there. I'm not even going to let you yeah. touch on that. I mean, none of the family from the first one were lookers. But not to the extent here. The, the only real deformity, obviously you have Michael Berryman. And you had Papa Jupiter had quite a nice little jagged nose. Yeah, the kind of cavity going down. Uh, but not to the extent of this. Yeah. Everyone's very nicely done and all different. Uh, they're all varied and it all kind of fits a personality for them. Uh, whoever, yeah, whoever did the prosthetics on this props to them. is It, it looks very real. And whoever designed them got spot on for every single character. You can tell who they are without them having to speak. Uh, yeah, it goes through the opening credit sequence, and it's, it's yeah, you see these horrific uh, deformities of poor individuals who've uh, undergone radiation or some such thing. And that's what's happened here. It's made quite obvious. You see, a bomb was blown off, uh, radiation stuff, and there were miners in a mining town who were told to leave before but refused to leave, and have basically mutated as time's gone on. Uh, They've mated with each other, uh, and in a kind of nuclear fallout town, kind of um, like Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, the town he comes up to in that, in the with the fridge, no fridges in this. Thank God. <laughs> they uh, yeah, um, they stay in a kind of village like that after having moved from the mines earlier, and they're all you know, various sort of deformities. They have the same trading system they had with the uh, gas station attendant earlier, but a very different dynamic. Yeah, I don't think they're related in this one. No, yeah. They don't need the whole mutant deformity through birth. They've got the radiation Mm. stuff, and he's clearly not irradiated. Yeah. Could do with a few teeth. I I was actually reading through a Roger Ebert uh, review, make sure I didn't miss anything before we touched on this, and he quite nicely touched upon the idea of the gas station attendant cliché of the whole, yeah, this random gas station in the middle of nowhere that looks run down, destroyed, horrible. Uh, and for some reason, our protagonists decide, yeah, he's a reliable person to take <laughs> advice from. Go wherever he says is gospel. Yeah. In this one, they haven't bought a mine. They're literally just driving through the desert because it's uh, a wedding anniversary. And they're like, fuck it, let's take the family. Yeah, 25th wedding anniversary. They're heading towards California. Uh, and Big Bob wanted to see the desert on the way. I can almost buy more than the mine, to be honest, because he is put to such an nth degree, his character. He's such an arsehole. He's so set in his ways, uh, which I really enjoy to watch. The the actor does a really good job. Perfect casting on him. Start the film, Ruby goes up, very similar to the first one. She doesn't have to leave this time. She kind of... I think it's Ruby. I don't think she's ever seen during Mm. this point. They don't have a conversational relationship, the gas station attendant and the clan. Yeah. It's very uneasy. You get the feeling kind of like one slip and the ice breaks and they kill each other. Yeah. And it's a lot more benefactory. He gets gold and valuables from the people that the clan have killed. He gives them stuff they need. And I presume he takes some money in return. Some of the 
you know, kind of findings for himself. Mm-hmm. I think he's been doing it for a while, what you can tell, uh, because he's, he's kind of losing it a bit. He's, he's yeah muttering, and quite like the first film, he goes on a kind of, this is the last one I ever do. Yeah, I'm not doing this ever again. He's a lot more emotional in this one. Uh, you can tell he's properly cracking, which leads up a lot better to his uh, suicide later, as I did in the first one. I think the first one was more, I don't want to be killed in a brutal manner. In this one, it really is a, I'm done. Yeah. So this time it's pretty much different, just slightly different by, um, he's not related to the family, but he also, this is like the last family uh, that he'll send through the clan's territory. So, he actually does. He doesn't try to send him away. He, he tells them to go along this road. Yeah, he tells them time. of a different route through the hills. And then as the family all set off, Big Bob obviously takes the shortcut. One one of the cannibals, uh, either way, throws his proper spike trap. It's a police trap thing uh, to cut the tyres. Yeah, instead of sending a rabbit across the road. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, it's more active. In yeah. a sense, uh, and that's what you get a lot from this film. People actually do stuff, and they say they're going to do it. They come up with plans. Yeah, it actually happens. It's more proactive than it was coincidence in the last one. But yeah, you've even got the the cannibals are far more proactive in being a little more horrific. Yeah, uh, when they give off the valuables to the gas station attendant at the start in the first one, obviously it's just I think it's just like cameras, radios, and the like. Mm-hmm. In this one, it's jewellery, a wallet with an identification in it, and a severed ear for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't understand that bit myself either. I assumed it was just like the cannibals are crazy uh, and some of our, but I got the feeling that Lizard, possibly not Papa Jupiter in this one, is far more monstrous than he was in the last one. Yeah. But Lizard, Lizard at least, had his head together. Big brain as well, the guy with the huge cranium. Mm-hmm. Mega Minds. Uh, disabled cousin yeah, uh, seem to have their head on straight to some extent. I suppose he eats a bird doesn't he? Yeah, he, that he still together. eats the bird. Um, yeah, they travel down the road after being directed by uh, a gas station attendant who's clearly reliable and trustworthy to every degree. Uh, you learn a lot more about the people in this one as well. There's a lot more conversation as they go along between each of the family members, uh, which is really nice. Doug you learn quickly he's a mobile technician, I think. Like sells phones. Yeah, something like that. Big Bob in this one, he used to be a security assessor. Or he used to be a detective and now going security assessment. Mm-hmm. And Brenda, who's still called Brenda. Poor girl. I know you want to take the original names, but it's got to be some updates. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've changed the names of the uh, the clan, so or some of the names of the clan. They're not named after, like, um, planets and stuff anymore. Two of them are. But you changed Mars's name to Lizard, so why can't you change poor Brenda? I, I don't know any Brendas. Yeah, there's one called Cyst, there's one called Big Brain, so. And there's one called Goggle. But I mean, they are still dicks, the family. Uh, don't worry about that. They still rummage through the poor man's house. Oh, yeah, they still look through the uh, gas attendant stuff and take stuff and shit like that, so. I wouldn't feel too badly for them. Oh, yeah, I mean, the dogs, again, they're savage, monstrous things yeah. that will run off the lead at any point. Uh, I'm surprised the gas station attendant wasn't slaughtered in the first five minutes, as these dogs are brutal. Yeah. 
and it runs through the house, I think, looking for Ruby, because Ruby nicks uh, a hoodie off little Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Doug goes to get the dog and brings it back. Uh, they don't see the ear or anything at this point. I think they see it later because they're you know, nice enough at least not to look through all of the guy's things. They snoop, but not complete dicks yet. It'd be fair to be making me more unlikable than something I really hated. It happened in the originals, but it was kind of glossed over, is that Doug has a gun pointed at him by little Bob. I mean, little Bob, he's 14. He clearly knows his way around a gun. At that point, you know you don't point a gun at anyone, even if the safety's on. Even if there's nothing in it, you don't point a gun at anyone, ever. Yeah. It's big rule. Big number one rule. More annoying me that Big Bob didn't like, immediately castrate him for that and say, what the fuck are you doing? And take the gun off the guy. To be fair, it seemed like the Bobs were a bit gun-happy anyway. It, I was just out of my head. I was thinking, he's a security guy, he was a police officer, he should know yeah. this, even if he's gun-happy. You'd hope. You'd hope, but... It came across to me like a non-American trying to write Republicans and Democrats as these complete like contrasting, absolute other ends of the spectrum types. Yeah. So for, yeah, Big Bob, I, I said he's an extreme, an insane, ridiculous extreme. I'd still expect a security guy to take that safety to some extent seriously. Uh, one thing has to be mentioned of the family. They head off, basically. They get the spike strips done. Bob, obviously Big Bob, has his revolver still, obviously carrying on from the first original. Um, and he gives little Bob a little pistol to, obviously he's going to stay and protect the family while him and Doug go and search for something to help them because they've, they've run over the spike strips. And obviously they ridicule Doug for God knows how long because he's kind of like a pacifist sort of thing. He's a pacifist more or less. He doesn't like guns. Doesn't like yeah. pointed at him. Yeah, weirdly. surprisingly he doesn't like guns pointed at him. But even though... Okay, I'd understand if obviously Big Bob and uh, Little Bob obviously split up their guns between the two of them. But if Big Bob and Doug went off together, I'd be like okay, sweet. They're staying together. One gun between them should be fine. But Doug heads one direction and Bob heads the other. So either way, Doug is pretty much unprotected. Yeah, I, I suppose you're at a point where you're not expecting any yeah, danger. Yeah, I mean, at this point, beyond, yeah. Beyond rattlesnake. At this point, you're not expecting much danger except you've ran over a spike strip. I don't know whether at this point they know it's a spike strip or if they just hit. No, they, they, think, they think they hit a rock. Okay. Because the spike strips very quickly kind of get taken away. Know, Relax. Yeah, it gets taken away. Oh, it did. Yeah, kind of confused me a little. They're driving down an open road. There aren't that many hills. There isn't that much cover around here. Nah. I feel like you'd see. Like I think just the director could have picked a better spot on the road mm. to have a little bit of cover for someone to hide and run from. Uh, it was a problem in the gas station, to be honest, because there wasn't much cover there, and Ruby still somehow got the hoodie. Yeah, managed to run off without being seen at all. I will say, like after they, they, those two have split up. Doug and Big Bob have split up, and they've gone. Hey, little Bob, you're staying here, protecting the family. You've got the only gun that's like here. Stay here, protect the family. Instantly, instantly, they let the dog out. He chases after the dog, leaving the family unprotected. Yeah, runs like a madman. Yeah, 
following charging off again it's beauty and beast the dogs following beauty beauty's demise literally happens right at the start she's literally mutilated he literally full does the same thing literally starts to run away terrified obviously as you would seeing as your dog turned inside out runs off falls down the hill knocks himself out and um ruby stays with him to protect him for a little yeah, bit he falls down one hell of a distance this time yeah a good like story the drop and he, he slips a bit more realistically. Mm-hmm. You can see he's kind of he's just running ahead. He's sprinting. He's not looking where he's going. And I think his foot just kind of catches the hole, and he slips down. Yeah, uh, and smacks his head on the ground. Yeah, the dog. It should be said. Yeah, it looks better. You're gonna hear that a lot. To be fair, it's, it's a different era. But it looks good for 2006. Mm-hmm. To be fair, completely disemboweled. They can hold on it a lot longer than they could in uh, Wes Craven's version, obviously, because effects have caught up with what they want to do with it. And yeah, it's a disemboweled dog. Looks very realistic. Yeah, he drops down a hole. Ruby kind of comforts him. Yeah, kind of. And once pr- again... Protects him from Goggle, one of the other yeah. family members or clan members. Goggle, who uh, uses binoculars in the area. I don't know if that's the only reason they called him Goggle. If that's the case, he wasn't named until he was about 20. I was going to say, yeah, it's like calling the person who builds Bildy. Not exactly that creative. I mean, it worked for Bob. Uh, he does have, yeah, there's another thing. With the mutants, as I said, you uh, get characteristics come through on their deformities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Goggle's case, it's these tiny eyes. He's got, he looks a little bit like the um, creature from Panda Labyrinth. Yeah. The uh, one with the eyes and hands, just with two kind of tiny eye slits, which are kind of like night vision things, I presume. Yeah, to be fair, he did, he was using like glasses or, or like pretty much the entire film, wasn't he? So maybe that's why. He- Maybe that's why it's uh, called Goggle. But yeah, it's just those little fun aspects of the physicality mm-hmm. of these guys who have had fun with the design and you could instantly tell, yeah, that's the lookout guy. Yeah. He's got tiny little slit eyes and he's he's a little bit more savage. He's a little bit stealthy. Mm-hmm. He can kind of go in and out. doesn't help him like in the film. has to be said, he kind of ends up like Mercury. Yeah. But uh, no one can hide from the beast except that rabbit. Rabbit doesn't show up again. Damn shame. I don't even think the rabbit hides. I think it's literally just like strutting with its massive dick out. And it's like, yeah, you ain't going to take me. It's fine. Uh, yeah, with Ruby and little Bob again, I know Ruby obviously doesn't kill him. But I feel like Goggle would have made mention. It just annoys me again that little Bob wasn't just immediately killed. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the like mistakes that they covered up in this one that they didn't in the, last, uh, in the original. Because... When he knocks himself out, Ruby's the one to protect him from Goggle. Because, like, if I remember correctly, they both stumble across his body, but obviously Ruby's the one kind of, like, stroking his hair and, like, wiping the blood off his face. Um, And then she hears... Goggle's eating a dog. Yeah, Goggle is kind of busy eating beauty at the point. But when he notices that, uh, obviously, this... Uh, little Bob stand this ravine sort of thing. She doesn't really do anything to dissuade Goggle. I think Goggle's just busy with the dog, to be fair. And Ruby, I think, I presume he assumes that Ruby will deal with it. Oh, right, okay. It annoyed me a little because I always thought Goggle would have got someone else. Mm-hmm. I suppose at this point they are a little arrogant themselves. They think they can deal with the situation quite easily. It's just a kid yeah. on the ground. And to be fair, the bigger threats are out there. 
at the moment. You want to take care of um, Doug and Bob, really. So, yeah, he's on the ground. And once again, the family wait until fucking nightfall before they bother to worry about him. Yeah. Doug's basically... Uh, I think he kind of says he's, that he's heading towards the interstate. But along the way, he finds, again, the crater. He finds, like, a large crater with, like, n- loads of abandoned cards and other stuff in there. And obviously, like... I can only assume there's a reel of wire and um, a, a, a flask in there somewhere, but he's picked up a teddy. For his yeah, I think teddy. it makes more sense he picks up the teddy yeah. there. He's bringing it back to his daughter. Uh, there's kind of a little bit of amusing pantomime-esque blood that he just misses every time on some of the cars, like there are bloody handprints on the wrong side. Yeah, Kind of, kind of like Shaun the Dead-esque, when he goes through the convenience store and he doesn't notice anything's off. I feel like if you saw this giant dump of cars, probably less so in the modern day, to be fair, than the 70s. Yeah. But you'd still be thinking, why are these all here? and Why have they still got stuff in them? Yeah. Yeah. It's more the stuff. I mean, if there were cars dumped, yeah, could be anything. With a load of stuff in it, I'd really be worried. I'd be thinking, what the fuck? I'd imagine you'd notice the tyres slashed as well. I, Ramby's obviously, they're using tyre spikes. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd cars. assume so. Maybe they found other ways to... Like, maybe that was just the way they did it this time. Maybe there's a few ways that we just can't think of that they can Killer Kill a rabbit's had a yeah. day off. There you go. Uh, yeah, he makes it back, Doug, quite nicely. Uh, kind of as Big Bob's getting to the... Um, gas station. The gas station. Uh, and this time he doesn't break and enter, thank God. He knocks and announces his own presence. Yeah. Big Bob. About eight again. It's nightfall. Pretty much it is very dark. Yeah, uh, I know he finds loads of like newspaper clippings and details of like disappearances in the area, and like obviously, um, it says like one of the newspapers saying like how there's a nuclear testing being done in the mining town that's close by, and it doesn't say oh there's mutated people in the town, but it's like okay there's been nuclear testing recently uh, or in the past in this town in this place and. Yeah, and he's got reason to really snoop around at this point because he's got a bottle of water. He's trying to ask for the attendant. Obviously, the door's open and no one's responding. Yeah, uh, it's certainly more reason than in the last film. Yeah, where they just went through his stuff <clears throat> for no reason whatsoever. Eventually, he kind of opens. Um, it looks like a chip container thing, little uh, plastic box mm. filled with the valuables and the severed ear. And that's when he gets out his gun. I think. Yeah. I think so. I think at that point he finds the attendant and like out in the outhouse. Yeah, he heads out, sees the attendant with a shotgun, kind of the door. He opens it up, has the gun pointed out in the revolver. Yeah, the attendant, really brilliantly uh, acted, is clearly broken mentally completely. He's got a half drunken bottle of whiskey that he's holding. He's just done. Yeah, like you know what's coming, but it's still fairly horrifying to watch because you see it all he literally puts the shotgun underneath his chin, pulls the trigger and you see his face come off. It like splits in half Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, brutal. Yeah, that's the only word for it and it, it thinks more the build up that really gives it the payoff because this guy's sobbing, you can see he's, he's fucking broken, mm-hmm. done with everything really makes it Obviously Bob seeing this dude blow his own face off, kind of starts to run away. He gets into an abandoned vehicle, if I remember correctly, and then... He starts kind of shoot. he gets in at first 
Uh, I think he might have seen the gas tendon after he got in. But yeah, he gets in it and then gets out again. He starts hearing some rustling about and that gives Papa Jupiter time to get in the back seat. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, he's basically ambushed from the back seat. He's panicking. Yeah, and he... He's shooting into the night. He doesn't check the back seat because he's panicking. Yeah, uh, he gets his face kind of repeatedly slammed against the the driver's side window. Yeah, which you also see in pretty much full detail. Yeah, I will say that has to be the strongest passenger side window of all time. I like, yeah, a little Chevy thing. Like, it must be the thickest stained glass or or something, because he slams his head, like, repeatedly into it. And it's kind of hinted that the the mutated clansmen have, like, increased strength and stuff like that. I mean, you saw someone waving a person on the end of a pickaxe and, like, at the start of the film. Yeah, I mean, a dog's been disemboweled. There's been enough stuff that, yeah, these guys... Thoughts on Papa Jupiter? He looked good. I know he's very different than what he was in the first one. The first one, he was kind of calculating. Yeah, uh, to be fair, it was fairly poor, like not poorly lit, but it was like it had enough shadow to kind of obscure most of it. So I didn't really get a good look at him until later on. But when I did see him, he he looked pretty good compared to obviously again the old ones were passable as kind of uh, like prosthetics go. But these ones are like a, a, a higher tier, if, if you know what I mean. They yeah, look better they than they do. Allow a level past. of expression as well, which is different for each of the clan. Yeah. Papa Jupiter is just a monster. I don't hear him speak at all. He's just completely savage throughout uh, no, the entirety of it. Uh, terrifying. If you saw this guy running at you in a dark alley, you'd piss yourself. Yeah, Big Bob mm-hmm. slammed, and then quite a nice little camera trick they do. They kind of go black and they show some colour they show Bob being dragged about it's almost like slipping in and out of consciousness as they have the camera kind of fade in and out uh, which is really nice as he's pulled on this little gurney and I mean obviously you know what's coming up it's the big payoff of the film uh, very similar to the first one you're going to hear this a lot but it's just done better they've got more money they can get away with a lot more and the acting's just better the idea was brilliant in the original it's just this had the money to execute it so yeah Um, everyone gets everyone gets back uh, except obviously Big Bob uh, to the trailer. Doug comes back with all the stuff. Little Bobby, once again, decides mentioning the disemboweled dog. Not a priority. Yeah, Brenda goes looking for Little Bobby, and when they get back, Doug, Doug's just returning, I think. Yeah, pretty um, much. It's about... I think, I think it skips a little bit of time, but it's very close. And Little Bobby, yeah, once again, doesn't bother telling anyone this really vital information. Uh, and it it goes ahead pretty much the same as it did in the original. It follows along, follows along pretty much the same, even up until Bobby, Big Bob, being used as a distraction, being satellite. Yeah, him being immolated on the tree. Um, everyone goes out to extinguish the fire. The only difference is they, for some reason, decide to not. That it seems like they show you more of the rape than the the old ones did yeah the old one cut over it a bit and it had the camera purely on the top half i think she always had a shirt yeah. on through the entirety of it it left the act with all the decency this is um kind of game of thrones level brutal mm-hmm. it shows it in every uh horrifying detail it shall not sure they needed i think that's overindulgence for the sake of it 
yeah, it, it kept on cutting between Pluto destroying the place to Lizard having his way. And then, obviously, the gunshots alert everyone else. They run back. and yeah, I mean, this one, uh, I suppose the only difference is Pluto isn't hit with a broom. Yeah. Uh, Lin, Lin is still a badass. Yeah, screw drives him. Uh, Corkscrew is the bastard in the foot. Yeah, she full-on twists and everything. It's great. I think she stabs him in the foot and then she stabs him in the thigh again, I think. And then when she's in the thigh, she starts, like, digging around. And then that's where he pulls the revolver. And Instead of shooting her twice, he just shoots her in the head in this one. Yeah. I think it's a study of contrast with it between like, sexual assault scenes. The one with Brenda, I think, was a little tasteless. The one with Lynn is a lot better in that it served a purpose. Is mm-hmm. Lynn constantly showing for this to be very motherly, very protective over her baby. And all the while, while Lizard is touching up her breast, the entire bit, he's got one hand on a revolver pointed at her baby. And she kind of yeah. lets it happen. Yeah, she lets it happen. And then when he starts to get distracted by it all, I think she picks up like a frying pan and fucking cold clocks him in the side of the head. Yeah. The proper wang. Yeah. Instead instead of picking up a broom and hitting with a brush, she's picked up a frying pan and started following cold, uh, cold clocking him in the side of the head. That kind of gets into the bit of the scuffle where instead of... Um, Brenda throwing over a knife. She finds a screwdriver close to her, stabs him twice, and then he turns around, blows the top of her head off. I will say that that revolver has like different powers of kick for each person because he shot Ethel. Yeah, her name Ethel, and she flies across the room. Yeah, she's taken off her fucking feet. Yeah, she's flown across the room by a single gunshot. And Lynn is shot in the top of her head and she just falls down. Yeah, it's more kind of style. Yeah. Falling on the ground. Bang. <laughs> I don't know. what a 50... No, they're probably about the same weight, aren't they? Or at least mm. they're not different enough in weight that that should have uh, yeah so differently. From this part, it's where it kind of diverges. It's already been just basically the same but high quality up to this point. And now, yeah, it really kind of takes a sharp turn. Quite similar to filling in Doug going to the abandoned cars and showing all that in detail. They kind of show Doug's journey this time in a lot more detail and show the end result. And it's it's just a lot grander. There's just more yeah. to it. Obviously, Goggles watching all this and obviously Beast comes along, pushes him off the cliff. Oh, he doesn't push him off. He fucking rips his throat out in this one. Oh, right. They had, okay. They had the budget to go for the throat rip. Oh, in that case, that, that happens... Obviously, Doug comes back because of all the gunfire and all that. Doug waits until the morning, which sets... Like, it gives more of a reason for the calm sort of thing going on with him. Yeah. He's a bit more methodical in his, like, what's called... He he still... He becomes a bit reckless later, but at the moment, he's still calm-ish. Yeah, uh, Doug throughout this as well, he's obviously been given more character. And you do get the sense that he is far more logical about each step. He's a smart mm-hmm. guy. He works in um, mobile phone stuff. I think they said at one point a really nice line. Um, we cover 99.7% of the whole country with mobile phone access except this fucking area. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I never mind. If they don't mention the mobile phone stuff, I just assume they don't work. Yeah. I, I don't care. Uh, but it was just a nice little addition there. 
almost thought it was yeah. like a jab at every other horror film. So ba- yeah, basically, Dog waits until morning now. At least he's not like running out at midnight to go look for them. They also actually bury the bot, not bury the bodies, but they put the bodies away this time. Yeah, rather than leaving them to rot. They put them in the, the station wagon or something, don't they? they yeah, don't, yeah. It's a lot more tasteful than leaving your mom out as bait. So yeah, he basically sets out to go and rescue his daughter, and then he comes across the village, like the uh, the mining town uh, that's been like nuclear tested. Yeah, it, it's basically a nuke test town. You see the kind of mannequins, mm-hmm. the plastic fellas. He goes through the entire mine. Obviously, he's got beasts at his side all the way this time to you know keep him safe. Yeah, to, and you see kind of pickaxes. There's a lot of world building in this one as well. A lot more than there was in the last one. Uh, you see what happened to all the miners. They've got kind of pictures. The miners with little pickaxes to say, "Oh, this is where they died." There was a cave in or something. Yeah, uh, was from the nuke. Uh, and yet he continues down the dog. And then possibly my favourite design of mutant in the entire thing um, called Cyst, was it? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, they don't do much with him, but he's a lumbering ogre type, kind of the same build as Sloth. Uh, he's got a neck brace, I think it was, and he's almost got his, like, his brain showing. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I know who you're on about now. Because, honestly, the, I didn't know the names for them, so I just assumed like I just go off what they look like. But now that you mentioned the neck brace, I remember who you're on about now. Well, yeah, it's, it's the great thing about this. You don't need names, because yeah. each of the mutants, they look so distinct. Uh, as opposed to the other one where Mars looked really like Papa Jupiter. There wasn't much to differentiate them. There yeah. more mutants in this as well, so you need that extra level of differentiation. So yeah, he comes across this like nuclear-tested village, and he sneaks into one of the houses, sees a fairly big woman watching TV. I think she's actually called Big Mama Yeah, in this one. Uh, no relation to Big Mama's house, I presume. And um, he notices that his baby is like in a on laying on the bed in a separate room to her. He goes over to that. Does he pull back the blanket and it's a fake? No, no. Do a really nice thing where when he walks past Big Mama for the first time, you can see his reflect not his reflection in the TV screen, but you see stuff is reflected mm-hmm. in it. I don't think you ever actually see his reflection in it, or you see you don't ever see a reaction to seeing his reflection yeah. at least. But it's implied that's how she spotted him. And he does get to his baby, he picks her up, starts to leave, and then you just cut to Big Mama with, um, I think it's like a hammer. Yeah, she knocks him out. Slams him over the head. Yeah. And then he wakes up in an icebox full of like dismembered body parts and covered in blood. And, and then he just li- he literally just like Sparta kicks the, the doors off. He, he has to kick it a few times, yeah. but he takes the doors off the icebox. And that's where he finds uh, Big Brain, which is uh, like a, a wheelchair-bound mutated person with, like, obviously a massive head, kind of short legs and regular-sized arms, I think. Yeah, it was a weird one. His brain kind of overextends over the wheelchair, yeah, drooping down. It's kind of like Mega Mind's disabled brother. Yeah. Uh, who kind of performs the same job as the gas attendant from the original to kind of give the backstory of everyone in full. It's a little more I don't know, philosophical in the kind of we were abandoned by civilization. Yeah, We were left to rot in the dredges where we couldn't be seen. Uh, and yeah, he goes through this whole spiel. I think delaying it for Sloth to come in 
kind of keep him standing there. Yeah, he kind of um, Big Brain kind of explains where how they became mutants and stuff like that. Basically, it seemed like it was an attempt to kind of stall him into not killing him, giving him enough time for Pluto to come in and start fucking throwing him around the room. Yeah, and the fight, uh, I've got a few reservations with it here and there. Yeah, but generally speaking, it's at least well shot. There's no kind of like quick jumps back and forth. Music's very subtle through the entirety. I don't think there is any. It's almost entirely uh, ambient noise. Yeah, I think it is. Music for the entirety of this film's used almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm brought back to Big Bob. That that was really subtle. They like had a little bit to build up to the guy with the shotgun, then they had nothing. Then they had music as he's frantically looking around, then they had nothing in the car and he was bashed. Uh, he really, yeah, he knows when to put it in, when to leave it. Uh, and in this point, the fight, it's almost silent at points. It's uh, really nicely done. Really subtly done. So during the fight, if I remember rightly, Doug loses a couple fingers at one point. He gets thrown through some walls. Uh, he comes back fighting, which I'm absolutely fine with. He's got his daughter on the line. You never know what a parent's going to do uh, with a showdown like this. Pluto's actually fucking beating as well. To be fair, I think it pretty much goes like he's getting thrown through walls. He's getting. Uh, he tries to escape and he starts like. Uh, I think he hits him a few times like a wooden, like wooden plank and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Pluto basically grabs like this fire axe, swings it downwards, takes off like the last two fingers of his hand, kind of hustle style, uh, instead of with the chainsaw, it's with a fire axe. Um, and then he um, starts. He lulls him into kind of a sense of false security, yeah. uh, dog, kind of crying, begging not to be killed, with, what's it, a screwdriver again? Ready to stab through his foot. Yeah, I think he yeah he stabs a screwdriver through his foot, and then when obviously Pluto's kind of screaming from that, he picks up the axe and buries it in his skull. Uh, yeah, he uh, hits him with the axe, and then eventually gets the American flag. Is oh, the, that's the it, final yeah. kind of killer notion. I'm sure that has some sort of um, meaning behind it. Yeah, because the 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 American the American flag was buried in um, Big Bob's. Uh, burnt corpse skull. Oh, it was, yeah. It's kind of reclaiming he, it, moving the fight over. Yeah, and then uh, obviously kills him with that. Oh no, he puts that through his neck or something, yeah. doesn't he? Puts it through his neck, kind of Pluto is left there to bleed out. Uh, big brain. And then uh, Big brain, yeah, he gets a moment to go on the walkie-talkie uh, to say kill the baby. He seems to be the brains behind the operation, for lack of a better term. Yeah, kill, uh, asks Lizard. Um, Lizard to kill Baby, and then Doug goes out. I can't remember if he finds a shotgun or if he uses the axe, but he kills Cyst, the one with the neck brace. Uh, so yeah, Beast kills Big Brain. Yeah, That's actually that. not shown, which is a shame. They probably killed too many fucking people, Beast. I don't want to take the spotlight away from Doug again. Yeah, Doug grabs an axe and just chops Cyst straight in the head, which oh, I found a bit of a shame. It was, uh, yeah, Sist, he was built up as this big fucking guy and he was instantly killed. Uh, he had a shotgun or something, didn't he? Sist was firing at him with a shotgun and Doug still managed to kill him with a fire axe. Yeah, um, Doug really did him a new one. 
and then it kind of falls into the same uh, venture as the last one with Doug, where uh, Ruby swaps the baby over with the pig. How they got the pig, I don't fucking know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then Ruby runs off. Uh, it switches the story a little, very similar to the last one. It's almost exactly the same uh, points where yeah. we go over to little Bob and Brenda who are coping with Lynn and Ethel and Big Bob being dead. Little Bob takes a lot of the lead this time rather than Brenda. He comes up with all the ideas. They do a not a noise trap, but a kind of perimeter alarm thing mm-hmm. with a um, fishing rod. Uh, it quite irritates me, actually. Yeah, they get out. The fishing rod comes down and they see a, a tumbleweed pushing on yeah. it. And Brenda kind of says, oh, it's just a tumbleweed. We can ignore it. We can go back inside. Just, no. A tumbleweed could be a coincidence. You want to check. The rest of it's the whole point of having a perimeter set up, for fuck's sake. Uh, um, and I can't remember why he leaves, but he does leave. And he finds Jupiter. He might have been like, following a trail. Oh, that was it, yeah. The car door's open. I think Ethel's body been taken. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ethel's body was taken, so they go back into the caravan, start setting up the uh, matchstick trap, and then, as far as I remember, Jupiter starts coming back, and this time, instead of falling, uh, not falling for it, he opens the door, the, the, the caravan blows up, and he's dead. Yeah, I, they've I handcuffed his hand to the side, he's then opened the door, blown himself up. It just annoyed me that they didn't kind of... They weren't silent leaving. Leaving out of a window, that makes a bit of noise when you hit the ground. Yeah. He'd have heard that. He's clearly got pretty damn good senses. Uh, But either way, as it happens, he gets blown to shit. After Bob's wasted all the ammo. You mentioned shooting and a kamikaze cells, he just runs off. Oh, yeah. Firing behind him like an idiot. If he'd have just knelt down for a second, he'd have been able to blow that guy away. Yeah, and then you wouldn't have needed to blow up your own caravan. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that all that happens, uh, and then it cuts back to Doug, basically chasing Ruby and Lizard through the desert to try and get his daughter back. Uh, he catches up to Ruby, and when he points the shotgun at her, she kind of like. I don't think she talks through any of this. She just kind of like starts to hand the baby back. She says the odd here, I think, like one syllable word, or at least kind of um, motions to. Yeah, she doesn't converse at all. Yeah, uh, he drops the shotgun to obviously take his baby back. Oh no, sorry. When he's about to take the baby back, Lizard comes up and starts attacking him. He shoots him like three, four times with a shotgun at very close range. Yeah, you can see the holes in him. Mm. It's like a fucking bad abstract art project on his chest. Yeah, I think he like shoots him in the knee at one point. He shoots him in the chest. Like He is very riddled with shotgun shell uh, rounds. Um, I think even for the horror layman, you see the camera just stay on that body for one second too long and you go, yeah, when's he getting back up? Yeah. 
Yeah, we can see where you're angling the camera. We can see that he's going to be in frame. When's he going to get back up and attack him again? Yeah, so basically, this is the point where Doug kind of goes, all right, I'll take my baby back. Uh, Lizard stands back up, even though he's had, again, three shotgun shells like round, uh, left into, uh, put into him. He picks up the shotgun, aims at a dog, and this is this seems uh, maybe I'm taking prejudice from the first one, uh, the originals, back into this one. But Ruby literally like rugby tackles him off a cliff. Yeah, both, no. both of them falling to their deaths, and I'm like, even the good members of that clan are ruthless, ruthlessly like killed. Like, I wanted. Yeah, fair enough, Ruby. She hasn't done much in this film. But if she's helping the family and she's doing all this, like, she deserved to survive in the the originals. Why doesn't she deserve to f- survive in this one? Oh, she deserved an epic death at least. At least she didn't trip over and fall on a rock. Yeah. Caspozit or whatever. Uh, I mean, another thing on top of that, everyone in this version is de-aged by about Five years, six years. Yeah. Give or take. Ruby included. Uh, so it, it's not like a 20-year-old like she was in the original. Somewhere around there. Honestly, yeah. no, yeah. Eight years and she looks about 35. So she must have been mid-20s, late-20s. In this yeah. one, she's about 14, 13. Yeah. Doug doesn't look like he's from a Beastie Boys video in this one. <laughs> um, oh, that that's it. Uh, do, uh Bobby, little Bobby and Brenda find Jupiter is wounded from the trap, not dead. So they finish him off with a pickaxe. Yeah, and he, he does get blown up by this one. Yeah, he it's gets not blown that he up. Get away. He gets blown up, but he's wounded instead of like full on dead. And then they just pickaxe him to death. I think they yeah. put a pickaxe through his skull. These guys take a fucking beating to take out. Serious beating. Yeah. Pluto the least, actually, in a weird way. Little sloth took the least killing. And Sis, Sis took fucking nothing. One axe to the head. Yep. Favourite lucky one. Attacking out in an instant. So sad. Uh, yeah, I, it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. It kind of continues in the same vein as how your one went, uh, where they meet back up. Ruby obviously doesn't follow them. Poor girl dead at the bottom of a cliff with Lizard. And yeah... yeah they start walking off Doug, uh, Brenda, and Bobby. And Beast. Along with the baby. And then you cut to a binocular shot. Yeah, uh, a mutant watching from the cliffs with the binoculars. It's kind of implied they're dead after that. Yeah. I can't remember if in the second one they said there were no survivors. I have no fucking clue. I assume they're dead. Honestly, no, the re- the second remake, I literally couldn't give a fuck about. There was there was points in this film where I literally just zoned out. So yeah, so first film of each era, pretty much uh, same. Not yeah. shot for shot. There's additions in the later one, and there's a few changes here and there. I think for the better entirely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, I give. Wes Craven credit for writing the original. He did a very good job with the budget he had, but the remake just improved on it. Yeah, it it seems uh, like it was the film that he wanted to make back then, but obviously he didn't have the money or like uh, the backing to do it back then. 
you see, I would say it's a shame uh, that he didn't have any of the money and any of the stuff, but he then went on to write Hills of Ice 2 for the modern era, yeah. which kind of dices any of those hopes and dreams. Uh, so yeah, transitioning in. We actually have a good transition there. That's, that's amazing. Ruined now, but... <laughs> Almost sounded professional. Uh, Hills Have Eyes 2, 2007, just a year after the first one. I think the first one did do pretty well. Uh, cast, I recognised one of them. A uh, couple that I thought I had a moment on. Yeah, led by Jessica Straub. Straub? Straub. Yeah. yeah, Jessica Straub, who was in 90210. I think it's a police drama. Uh, I remember actually a few of them. I remember Michael McMillan, he was in uh, True Blood. Uh, Je- Jessica Straub, I watched her in like, Iron Fist and stuff like that. Um, oh, the uh, like Daredevil thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the only one I recognised properly and knew for a fact I knew where he was from uh, was Eric Edelstein, who played Spitter, who was from Green Room, played one of the neo-Nazis. I th- yeah, I think there was like three people in this whole film that I recognised. I should be first more so than yeah. the others. Yeah. Uh, and some of them, I'm not saying they're big names, but yeah, I've paid a little bit of money for some uh, actors who were known. Uh, as opposed to the director, who is also known uh, infamously. It's Martin Wise, a uh, German man who's directed mostly music videos. Uh, notably, I found online a Mel B. Uh, I think Mel B won Spice Girls originally. Yeah. He also did a Nickelback video uh, and a number of German pop videos, obviously written this time by Wes and his son, Jonathan Craven. Mm. Uh, a big worry I had with the director, obviously a film, kind of your director's your architect. If you script your blueprint, director your architect. Uh, a big worry was that he'd direct this like a music video. Mm-hmm. Music video, very one note, one tone, one story you get through and I'm afraid to say I think he pretty much did yeah it has the same tone throughout the entirety of it it's quite by the numbers shot wise yeah it never has that horror element this is by far and away the least horrific of the four yeah I'd agree with that I'd almost compare it uh, if you you sit and watch this as an action film rather than a horror film you'll get a lot more out of it almost I almost want Where's Craven, Jonathan Craven, to have a shot at doing a kind of Viet Cong thing now, because that's the kind of vibe I got from the underground tunnels and the booby traps everywhere, and they're like slowly picking off the American soldiers. Yeah. Uh, they, they take another cliche in this one. It's rather than the American family or the group of teenagers, it's soldiers, which for some reason is a common theme in horror sequels. They think, how can we up the ante, add American soldiers to the mix? Make them more powerful just, and able to fight back. I just a know. few more explosions will do. That's what they want in a horror film, right? But it, that's because they're the most useless soldiers around. Oh yeah, uh, great group. Yeah, uh, it starts off quite similar to how the first one, of the remakes, started off with a bit of a, a segment away from the main cast. This time, you have a, a kind of installation, a Cold War installation bunker. Mm-hmm. attached to a load of mines uh, that's being thoroughly vetted for I, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know why they're there they're setting up radio equipment and the like 
it's never fully explained what the hell they're doing. Uh, surveying it, was it? Possibly. I, I genuinely don't know, because this one is the probably the film that I stopped paying attention in. Like, I was waning in the last couple. Uh, 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 sorry, and in, in, um, I watched these slightly out of order. So I watched uh, old one, new one, uh, old two, and then new two. So basically mid old two so like the third film in I was like starting to wane a bit and then by the time that I'd started this one I'd all hope had been lost and I just stopped paying attention um, yeah, could be playing cyberpunk what the fuck am I doing in my life yeah pretty much I was like I wasted eight hours watching these <laughs> thank you Kieran but um, I don't know It for this one it just it didn't grab me in literally any way I, I think the military kind of thing has just been done to tears and it's it's generic so I was just like uh, meh here it's just nonsensical I think the, the military themselves there's one sergeant and then there's loads of recruits mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I've, I've gone I haven't gone through um, British army regular training I applied to go through it uh, is coming off but it gave me a bit of an insight into how the military works how units are built and how they actually operate you aren't sent on a mission if you're in training yeah you're left in training you're not allowed to go here there and everywhere you're stuck on base uh, i don't know if the american system's any different i can't imagine it's that out there uh, especially with a unit you, you've got your sergeant you can have a corporal in there you can have a lance corporal you have a hierarchy of people it's a very you know, regulated uh, system. It's the military, it's the most regulated thing in the world. You don't send recruits to do any job. Yeah. Especially recruits this incompetent. I, I was watching the start and I was thinking, oh god, this could be terrible. Because they do a little segment of kind of uh, training exercises for the recruits, but you don't know it's a training exercise. Yeah. Until they reveal so. And they're so shit. It's, it's laughable. Like they go Rambo style, just grabbing like almost two guns akimbo and they throw grenades and they uh run and grab their helmet at one point in the middle of gunfire yeah it's awful these aren't recruits who've been here for half the time to be fair i think but basically the the start of the film is a woman uh, uh, pregnant on the bed oh yeah it has to be said uh this film tries to take it to the nth degree as well uh compared to the first one. It tries to take it to the nth degree over the uh, first one Yeah, in the modern remakes and you see a lot more and it's a lot less comfortable. Yeah. It's hard to do, to be honest. I mean, I, I feel like Brenda, uh, Sexual Assault, I don't want to say it was earned, but it was built up to and it was, it was depravity that I could just about tolerate. Yeah. I could sort of go, yeah, this is heinous, this is horrible. But it's almost tasteful. It's It really is on that border. Uh, this isn't. This is just. Yeah. This is just horrible shit. It's um, tasteless. It doesn't serve a purpose. Literally. Um, so the film opens up. There's a woman that looks like she's been there for a while, uh, heavily pregnant, um, like almost barely kept alive from eating, from like being fed and. Uh, She's got cracked lips because it looked like she is dehydrated and things like that. Obviously, she starts giving birth. 
um, the baby is mutated and uh, is stillborn. Um, Papa Hades doesn't like that. Oh, by the way, the head, the sorry, the arm comes out first. Papa Hades grabs it by the arm and literally pulls it completely straight out instead of waiting for the mum to just push. Yeah, you see how strong this guy's later. Uh, he'd have ripped that thing in half. Yeah, no doubt about it. He'd have like decapitated the boat. He'd ripped his arm off. He pulls it so bad that the umbilical cord stretches, and then he pulls the umbilical cord straight out of the woman. Yeah, no wonder this thing died. Yeah, and then because the the baby's dead, he caves her head in with a sledgehammer. Yeah, and then that's it. Then then it cuts to the colonel doing uh, science research, setting up a surveillance system. He's attacked by the mutants. And then it goes into the training red uh, segment where literally these fucking ass-backwards idiot soldiers <laughs> are kind of falling into this training regiment, fail it, and then the Sarge is like, okay, we've got a distress signal, let's go. Yeah, I'd almost give him credit for the kind of twist of this was just a training segment. I really thought it was going to be a, a proper Rambo thing and the best soldier of the platoon was called to deal with the situation personally mm-hmm. by the colonel. But they were just so shit, I can't give them any credit. It's not believable. They're that rubbish. No one's this bad. No one goes to get a helmet while they're being shot at. Yeah, ridiculous. Like, if you're in a training session, you start off with your equipment. That's how it seems to me. If you start training... You start off with your equipment. So, unless they've literally thrown their helmet like a like a like trying to act as a grenade, like and a then they've gone to pick it frisbee. back up. Yeah, and then they've gone to go pick it back up. That's strapped to your head, pretty damn solidly. Yeah, so these like, don't fall off. If I, I get that they were trying to make it seem like they were inept, but well, I suppose you succeeded, I guess, but. They took it too far. Is the problem. Yeah, you can make them too in it. Uh, Characterisation here—it's even more one note than the first film of the originals. Literally nicknamed, and that's their character. They're nicknamed by the uh, staff sergeant, and that's who they are. Yeah, got... it's literally Napoleon. I'm, I've got a list of their nicknames now: Napoleon, Barbie, Crank, Sarge, Missy, Spitter, Stump. And there's like three others that don't have a nickname because they die first. Yeah, I think the only ones you really need to pay attention to, uh, Crank, I remember, is the one who's insane. Yeah, he's the one that's like, I'm going to kill everyone. Yeah, he'd be court martialed within a week. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon is the only one with any sense to him other than the sergeant. Oh, to be fair, the, the, um, I think the, the one who takes charge after the sergeant dies. Got his head on straight, and the the two women uh, kind of know what they're missing, doing. Yeah. yeah, they both kind of know what they're doing throughout the entirety of it. Missy, it's horrendous what happens to her, but yeah. So yeah, they are driven uh, to offload some incredibly important equipment as recruits because that's how the army works. Uh, into the middle of nowhere, yeah, to the point where the radio can't even get a signal to base. Yeah. 
That's it, yeah, that's it. They're sent to basically resupply the scientists that had set up the surveillance system but were attacked. As they're heading along, obviously, Crank is being a dick and he's like, I'll kill Napoleon if he comes near me and blah, 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 and you're pathetic. And but He's not just doing that, he tries to do it. Yeah. Uh, he like grabs him by the shoulder, uh, puts him towards the road and nearly like kind of sprays his head against the against the uh, moving road, I think is what he's trying to do. Yeah, yeah, it was like they're both on the back of like a, a, a military escort vehicle and he basically like run, well, walks over to him, kind of shoves him so it like he's trying to push him over the, the like barrier that's like stopping him from falling onto open road and I'm like why not just shoot the one that's being completely irrational right now yeah, it would be a case of he's trying to kill him. Fuck, at least grab the guy, just punch him, knock him out, anything. Yeah. And instantly tell the sergeant, yeah, one of our recruits tried to murder me. Uh, but no, yeah, he's given a gun. Murder yeah, he... murder. He's given a gun, then when they get to the camp, they find it's been abandoned, and then they get... The, the ham radio goes off saying there's a distress call. Uh, the sarge takes this fucking pathetic excuse for a military unit and goes we're going on a search and rescue the the recruits kind of get all excited think they're going on spring break or some shit and then his the sergeant calls them back together like no this is a proper military mission there is none of this like excitedly running off and looking for people we do it in a strategic manner do it together done yeah I don't know why they did that. He said, I just had it in the back of my head then. Why is this an actual unit? Why mm-hmm. haven't you got actual soldiers doing this? Yeah. Literally, if I, I don't know if it's just me, like, um, but if I was in command of this unit, I'd be like, okay, the, the few people in this unit that have some kind of, like, not, ex- uh, not training, but, like, have some kind of weapon control and whatever... They come with me, the fucking yahoos that are like, let's go fucking kill everything or whatever. Stay, look after this camp, see if the, the what's called's working, the, the ham radio, whatnot. And then the three, four people that I take with me can search the area properly without having to babysit you fucking chocolateheads. Yeah, it's a shame really because that sergeant otherwise is very good. Yeah, he's, he's quite believable as a uh, drill sergeant kind of type. Why yeah. he's a drill sergeant and their overseeing sergeant? It doesn't make any sense. It's not protocol to any degree. Uh, yeah, he is very good. Yeah, I mean, he's no fucking full metal jacket, no iconic drill sergeant, but I believe him as mm-hmm. one. Uh, and he at least knows basic military protocol as he continues up, and he makes good decisions throughout the entirety of it. Yeah, except for a couple like leaving two people to guard the camp. Yeah, he leaves uh, Napoleon, which is I. He he uses a gun, but they make it sound like he's the like conscientious objector to every bullet fired. But he seems like the only one capable of using a fucking weapon. And then he leaves Barbie to kind of man the radio. And it seemed like Barbie had something going on with one of the other people in the... Yeah, which I think was the only reason he left her to man the radio, because apparently his soldiers are breeding like fucking rabbits. 
It really is spring break. It's like a teacher coming through with a load of students. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Then they all fuck off. Uh, Napoleon is literally left to guard the latrine. And I think just because he asked to go use it. Yeah, he asked uh, to use the toilet. Or no, he went to go use the toilet and the sergeant went, no, where the fuck do you think you're going? He said, I've got to use the toilet. And then he was like, no, fuck it. You're the guard of the toilet now and you cannot use it. But as soon as the sergeant fucks off, he goes in to take a shit. That yeah, he uh, he left his rifle outside, and I assumed that someone was going to take the rifle while he was on the chesser, but they never do. Oh, they the, do. Uh, they do later, but you see the rifle still like, on the side while he's in there. They take it while they're distracted, taking the most unfortunate fucking man on earth. I mean, with the shitter situation and with him guarding it on one leg, I quite liked. I've heard yeah. some stories from American drill sergeants. Yeah, I could see them doing that. Yeah, basically he has to guard this toilet while holding the gun above his head uh, on one leg. And basically the sergeant every now and again as they're walking away keeps turning around to have a look and make sure he's still guarding it like that. Um, yeah, it's great. It, it makes sense. It's what a drill sergeant does. He humiliates one guy. Barbie obviously carries on using the ham radio trying to contact uh, base. She doesn't get anywhere with it. I can't remember. Does she get a hold of the actual clan of hillbillies? Does she I don't, agree th- I don't think like she that? does because she's there for a while trying to call through and nothing comes back. And then that's when he goes to use the toilet and she kind of calls over him to him like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Yeah, I never quite. For God's sake, man. Let the guy use the toilet. Yeah. Dude needs to take a shit. Just let him take a shit. Fucking grass over here. Little teacher's pet rushing up and down. Uh, yeah, he goes for a shit and gets a um, <laughs> unwanted uh... copping a feel. Some, so basically, a hand reaches out of the port- portable toilet and kind of reaches a... between his legs. He, he freaks proctology exam, basically. Yeah, he freaks the fuck out. As you would, thinking you've given birth to an arm. And then uh, he runs out, tells Barbie, she's like, you're a fucking liar. Comes over, looks into the toilet, and that's when she sees the arm again come back out. Um, And then, like, the head, and he starts... The person inside the toilet calls for help. They help him and realise that he's, like, covered in deep cuts and stab wounds and stuff like that. And obviously he got shit in every single cut. Yeah, uh, and he ver- dies very quickly from like infection from these wounds. Yeah, I, I know Barbie asks what the hell did he die of, none of these cuts are deep enough, and um, Napoleon replies with infection. I don't think you die that fast from yeah. infection. I, yeah. It takes a while to actually kill over. You don't go from, I can talk, I'm still alive, to dead. The only thing moments. the only thing I can think of is those small wounds, obviously he was down in that cavern or whatever for a while after these cuts had been given to him. So maybe it's the cuts that have been given to him. He got the infection soon after he had the cuts and then he has managed to escape, climb through, and then the infection's just gotten around to killing him. You know, when I first saw him, I honestly assumed he'd hidden the toilet. <laughs> Get away from all the hillbillies as they attack the camp. I thought he decided to hide in the portable. I thought, what the fuck? Why? I mean, it's a good way to 
hide, I suppose, but you wouldn't really, really want to be dealing with the smell. Yeah, it's, it's a brutal way to kill someone. It's it's torturous. I wouldn't have come up with it, certainly. No, me either. Um, uh, and he, yeah, he very quickly dies with wounds. He gives a vague description of what's happening. Basically, people attack, but he doesn't have much time to say anything. That that's the thing. The the one that she had a thing for while they're searching falls and kind of twists his ankle or something like that, and then he's sent back uh, to the camp because obviously he can't walk all that well. Um, yeah, he falls. I think it's a mine shaft beneath the thing. It, it's about like hundred feet down, but uh, yeah. they grab him before he gets out. The sergeant they gave him all the fucking good lines. Like picks him out. And he says, thank you, Sarge, you saved my life. And the Sarge says, well, no, I was perfect. And yeah, he starts limping back. Uh, clearly can't put much weight on his foot. I think he's Amber's, was it Beauty? Barbie? I think he's Barbie's Barbie, yeah. Um, boyfriend. Yeah. So he's the one that's sent back. And then while all that's... It cuts back to the two in the camp. And then while they're dealing with this dude that's died from the infection or whatnot, they notice that their weapons are gone. And then they, the then they start getting attacked by the mutants. Yeah, basically, like the uh, car they have blows up. Yeah, the the truck that they all came on blows up. Their weapons are stolen, and that kind of forces them to kind of run into the hills uh, towards where the the uh, patrol went. Yeah, and the mutants in this one, in the in the last one, they uh, obviously used a lot of physicality. Reach the mutants to give off a characteristic. In this one, it gets blatantly fucking ridiculous. I've got superpowers. Some of the mutants. Yeah, yeah. Like one of them's got like a seven-inch tongue and shit like that. And I'm like, I don't. I think they're still human. They haven't like turned into like Toad from the X Men. Yeah, he looks that one with the seven-inch tongue. He's got skin, um, kind of like grayscale victims from Game of Thrones. He's got like, camouflage skin. Yeah, where he can go in front of people up against rocks and you won't see him. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't like this one is that... But yeah, basically their their transport's blown up, their weapons are stolen, they run towards the search party and find uh, the guy with the twisted ankle. Yeah, I'm sorry if this part of the conversation is a bit jumpy. Uh, there's currently a man with the drill that really doesn't like Hell's Advice 2 to such an extent he doesn't want us to talk about it. Every other moment Steph tries to have his mouth that drill fucking comes through. Yeah, I'm just really hesitant to open my mouth again. I think I'm okay for now. Right, so they go in search of the search party. This is the third time I'm doing this, by the way. Go in search of the search party. Uh, they find the guy that's twisted his ankle. And shortly after that, there's like a little hole, a little cubby hole that's uh, right next to his ankle. A hand reaches through, grabs him, and starts trying to pull him into this hole. Um, and... His to... girlfriend tries to pull on him, uh, obviously, and then tries to get a shot but can't see anything in there. Yeah. Um, asks Napoleon to take a shot in there, but he doesn't want to fire into his leg, so he refrains. Um, guy puts his leg up on the rock to kind of give himself a bit of uh, leverage to pull himself back away. Doesn't really matter because these mutants are hella strong and basically pull him like a foldable knife through this like very small hole his, his leg snaps inwardly yeah kind of thing 
like uh, on itself. The, his toes are touching the back of his neck by the time that he's through this hole. And yeah, it, it it's very much indicated that that guy's dead. He survives for like, a few seconds. Yeah. If, if your leg is broken like that, fucking hell, you're dead. Basically pulled him like a, a wishbone, is it? Yeah. Pulled oh, him like a wishbone God, through a the fucking... that's a horrible fucking analogy. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but yeah, basically he's pulled through the little bolt hole and killed. Yeah, which is... It, it was alright, it was creative. Yeah. At least, it, give it that. It didn't really put us in a mood to like him or that person any much anyway, but whatever. And then um, this is where uh, the patrol that's out on the search starts getting attacked or has like um, hit and run tactics put on them. And because then they are not trained in any single way. I know we said that we went they went through training earlier, but they 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 haven't really. He's one of the people starts panicking and starts just firing shots in random directions. The Sarge comes over to kind of calm things down. Dude spins round, riddles him with bullets, riddling the only person in this film to have any kind of structure and competence kind of to competence and leadership in any kind of way. He gets riddled with bullets, and then. Barbie and Napoleon kind of find the group and have to deal with how they're going to get Sergeant's body back. Uh, so yeah, Sergeant massacred by uh, Spitter, I think. Yeah. Uh, or Spittle. Uh, I'm glad you remember the names, because fuck if I can. I just remember he's from Green Room. All oh, right. And I quite like Green Room, Spitter. Yeah, who him and Crank saw one of the uh, hillbillies, one of the clan. I always wondered what his fucking plan was. Was he threw a rock at Spittle, hit him with an axe at one point uh, in the back, and did no damage. Yeah, uh, it just kind of grazed him. What was his plan if Spittle hadn't shot the sergeant? Because clearly they just shot him quite easily, uh, and any other fucking unit would have just shot the guy throwing rocks at them. I don't know, mate. I, I genuinely, I don't think there was a plan in any part of this film. It doesn't seem like there was one. With the sergeant shot, can't remember his name, who takes over from the sergeant, but someone takes over. Mm-hmm. And actually, to be fair, he's probably the only other competent person of the lot. And Napoleon's, Napoleon's amazing at everything. I mean, kind Ash, of a Gary, uh, Gary yeah. Sue type-esque thing. Yeah. Basically, for some reason, they're trying to get the sergeant's body somewhere. They want to carry it with them, even though he's a corpse at this point. They could probably like call in for reinforcements at some point and just come back and get him but basically they decide to climb down the cliff face uh, climb back down the cliff face uh, while all of them hold the rope and the one who shot him and Sarge is strapped to his back and then there's an argument about what kind of uh, uh, knot they want to use on the rope uh, Napoleon makes one, and he said it's it's probably the strongest kind of knot for this kind of thing. Um, is it Eagle Scouts or something? Yeah, something. He, like he knows knots. Yeah, they descended down, and then through I think the most staggering coincidence in a series that's had a fucking bunny caused many many car accidents. The rope happens to be perfectly in line with an entrance to the mine. Obviously. 
Because um, why would you look for holes in the the mountain face if you're going to climb down something? Yeah, I mean, I know it's um, obviously uh, covered up with a bit of branch, but you notice, having climbed up it, that, hold on, that's a hole. I can stick my foot through it. Or someone would see, like, there was a bit of darkness in there as you went past it. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, the uh, mutants use that hole to cut the rope and uh, poor little Spitter and the sergeant body. They both fall in embrace to uh, death and undeath. Yeah. More death. More death. Yeah, basically they're lowered down slowly, the rope's being cut, there's an argument between Crank and fucking Napoleon again, where Crank's like, I'm gonna fucking kill you, because that's literally the only line he's got. They start doing, like, traps for the mutants, where they start, like, they start talking about family members and stuff like that, and showing videos of their kids and stuff, and then literally they're like, now and then they drop down to the floor and they'd like all fucking the other uh, the rest of the men like open fire and like riddle this mutant with bullets yeah uh, it's kind of at this point you see the mutant in all their sub glory the masks they use I think they're masks not prosthetics in this one mm-hmm. they're not they're not good it's no expression to them you can never kind of see any anger or any fucking happiness in them it's not like the other mutants that felt real, uh, they weren't just blind monsters, except for Papa June. Papa June, Papa Jupiter, of course. It was a raving monster. But the rest of them, they kind of went from happy to angry to sad to confused. You could see the expression change. In these ones, it's just, I'm a mutant, rah, be scared. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could name the mutants. I couldn't put like oh, yeah. names to faces. Yes. If you did it for think even the originals and the first film, of the modern era, I could do it pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a crank threatens to kill Napoleon. Obviously, they start pulling the rope back up, and they it's said it's being cut. Um, yeah, that's when cut, and then I think that's when it cuts to those two making the trap of them talking about their kids and stuff like that, opening fire, killing one of them, and then realizing that works. I think. Missy's like, okay, I just need to quickly go for a piss. Walks off, and then that's when she's caught. I mean, I'm sure you'd employ like a buddy system. Yeah, especially if you know you're being this. hunted by a group of fuckheads. Yeah, and you've got two women. There's no excuse of a kind of I don't want to be looked at by a man. Yeah, uh, just women just have... go by yourself, or just yeah, set off two. pairs. Just like you two together, you two together, you two together, done. They're in the military. I can't imagine anyone gives a shit in a life or death situation. Uh, modesty goes out the window when it's, I could be killed here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she goes off on her own and fucking Toad from X-Men with the giant tongue and the stone skin uh, kidnaps her and takes her into uh, a cave hole uh, without anyone noticing. Yeah. I don't even know if they recognise that she's gone because uh, that's when they find... The Colonel... The Colonel... Colonel Redding? I think it's something along those lines. He dies very quickly. Yeah. Being mortally wounded, kind of... It, like, there's flaps of skin hanging off his scalp. There's, like, black eyes. He's got, like, stab wounds. He's got... He's, like, heavily, heavily, inju- heavily injured. Um, Dying, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you think... I mean, he turns out to be a fucking ninja. Yeah. That can uh, get up behind them without anyone noticing 
he kind of warns them that what the mutants' plans are to capture women, start breeding, reveals like a exit route through the mines before he just blows the top of his fucking head off. I think I think he does it next to a cliff edge, so his body falls back off the cliff edge, cliff edge, so they can't capture him or get any bullets from him or anything. Yeah. I always thought that that was kind of reason for them uh, to go through the mines, obviously, to save Missy, hmm. to give him an incentive of, yeah, she's alive, she's definitely alive, but for some reason, they keep saying she's dead, she's probably dead, and just go around and leave her. She's definitely alive. Yeah. He just told you. Uh, yeah, they, they do go to find Missy, and one of them takes charge. We crank Napoleon, Barbie, and one of them, as they get to the cave, uh, one of the entrances into the mine, one of them decides he was better off by himself. Yeah. Better off by himself and just leaves. I do want to point out, literally every person in this film that has been left on their own has died. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm I'm going to... I'm I'm gonna go back to camp, guys. Uh, I'll call for backup. We'll be fine. You On guys, a radio that doesn't work. Yeah, you guys go back. You guys, uh, you guys carry on into this cave. I'll call for backup. I'll be the one safe on my own. Wink, wink. I think we might as well just quickly. I think it, it takes a while to get back to him, but he dies almost immediately. Yeah, after it cuts back to him. Uh, in possibly my favourite kill of the modern era. He's climbing down a cliff face uh, and gets his arm chopped off. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. He finds a mine entrance, decides to shout in it, asking, uh, you know, he shouts after one of the uh, other army squaddies, giving away his location to every mutant fucking in the cave system for miles around. Uh, and then continues climbing, thinking, oh, there's no one there. And then a mutant comes up, chops his arm off and waves at him with his severed arm. Yeah, and then he it's falls the to his death, too. But just give it a second as he like stands there as he just waves. Oh. <laughs> he looks so happy. So I think it's the only time the mutant actually emotes. He looks ecstatically happy. I would do that if I just cut off someone's arm. I'd wave back at them with that arm. It, if I was a murderer, that would probably make me exceptionally happy. Uh, so from this point, it kind of cuts back and forth between something I barely really want to touch on. Because mm-hmm. it's not pleasant, uh, which is Missy's situation, where they show uh, it's just raper, yeah, in the, just an ugly way. Yeah, it's literally the most visual representation of rape I have seen in a film. I think at this point. Yeah, I've watched kind of a Holocaust a Serbian film. Watched Game of Thrones scenes. There was usually a build-up. There's usually a reason for it to exist at least and you kind of go yeah it's unpleasant but it's there for a reason it's there to make this guy look shit it's there to um, give her a reason to kill him Mm -hmm. and when you film it you have to be careful with what you show what you push forward if you do it way too on the nose it just looks gratuitous yeah Uh, subtlety is the aim of the game with scenes like that she bites off um, the tongue of yeah. this fucking stone monster, that their tongue that's some ridiculous like seven inches long. Yeah, it's like ridiculous. It's like a foot long, and fucking the dude tries to stick it in her mouth. Obviously, she's gonna bite it off because fucking obviously. Yeah, and uh, quite similar to the kind of thing with lizard and um, Pluto, 
in the last film, uh, he gets thrown off of her anyway by the big guy, uh, Papa Hades, in this case, I think's his name, mm-hmm. who said he kind of like, you need to be a man to do that kind of stuff. And he ends up leaving room stone skin while Papa Hades does what he does. Uh, and it, it lingers on that way too long. Yeah. There's fights back and forth. Yeah. He goes back to the uh, other military uh, who start descending through the caves bit by bit. Very little of interest happens, to be honest. Uh, go through a... I don't know, I didn't enjoy it. Let's just go through a tunnel. Yeah. I think at some point they were split into two groups of two. So it was murderous psycho with new leader and Napoleon Barbie all together separated again. If I remember correctly, they killed the stone one. The uh, Napoleon Barbie killed the stone one. Uh, yeah, at some point new leader gets mortally wounded but doesn't tell anyone. Yeah. And they end up finding friendly mutant. Yeah, they, f- they find friendly mutant which helps them kind of escape from some of the others. Uh, and he, yeah, he starts taking them through but you presume towards the exit, or at least towards their friend. For some reason, when they're getting off, Napoleon and uh, Barbie find the friendly mutant first, and then eventually Crank and the new leader get to them. Yeah. And for some reason, they don't immediately like say, "Oh, yeah, this is mutant. Don't kill him." Yeah. They give it a moment for him to introduce himself. He's that's going to go great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. C- Crank wants to kill him. He thinks he's leading him into a trap. Why would he? Then. Basically, new leader kind of died, dies from his mortal wounds, and Crank goes into like a uh, hysterics about it for some reason. It it hasn't been shown that Crank has had literally any kind of human emotion for anyone in this squad. But no, he's not got any particular relationship with the new leader. He just but he goes into some sort of like fugue anger state. Yeah, the second this guy dies, and he nearly tries to kill. Uh, friendly mutant. Um, he starts oh, like punching and kicking like a full-on heavy iron blast door. Like yeah, trying to open it up, and Napoleon well, obviously says, "You're not going to open it, mate. Stop bothering." Yeah. So while he's trying to open the blast door, if I remember correctly, Napoleon and Barbie go off to save Missy. Thankfully, they yeah. haven't completely written her off. Like, oh yeah, she's clearly dead. But thankfully they've gone, alright, she's possibly still alive, let's go look for her and rescue her and whatnot. I think it was from like what the colonel said, it's the whole um, they're having women to try to up their numbers. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's more hope than if it was a guy, at least. Mm. Uh, and then Crank quickly finished him off for his own stupidity in something yeah, it's mildly amusing. He blows himself up. Oh yeah. He takes uh, a crate of dynamite to try and blast the door open. Even though it's blast doors, it's literally supposed to hold up against like fucking nuclear attacks. He's like, yeah, a crate full of dynamite will do. And then he accidentally triggers them and kills them. Uh, kills himself. I don't know if he killed Friendly Mutant as well, because you never see Friendly Mutant again. I'd assume so. Yeah, it's obviously the Friendly Mutant, he said don't touch. Yeah. For a reason, obviously. I presume someone else has blown themselves up before. <laughs> and it's barricaded off. But then, uh, yeah, the poor guy, he's not seen again. You don't see him get blown up personally, but yeah, I think he did die. Because the blast is big enough that it actually affects uh, Barbie and Napoleon. They get, like, thrown back. But not big enough to alert anyone to their position. 
so after that, uh, Napoleon, Barbie, yeah, they move onwards uh, into basically where um, Missy is, where she's being held. Uh, Papa Hades is briefly distracted by uh, a phone they put out. Yeah, uh, they put a, they distract him with the f- same video of Missy's son or something, saying that he loves her and whatnot. Uh, puts the vi- uh, puts the phone somewhere. He kind of runs off to go look for it. They run in, try and free Missy. Yeah, they do manage to free her. They get her up, uh, and then Napoleon stands at the door with a knife because he knows, obviously, Papa Hades is going to see it's a phone. He's going to see it's a trap, yeah. a trick, and come back. And for some reason, Bobby says, "Oh no, don't do that. No, you don't need to do that." And then he just says, eh, "Okay." Starts walking off, and then Papa Hades just. Uh, slam through the wall. I never got that. Why uh, villains seem to destroy their own property so often, break their own wall. I mean, mate, you live there. You have to clean this <laughs> shit up after. But to be fair, the place looked like a shithole anyway, so I don't think a bit of debris and rubble would uh, change it all that much. So maybe it's I don't know. There's a care for nothing in this place. I want to see some monsters take some pride in their appearance. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then. I mean, the fight itself is rubbish. Yeah. It goes on forever. And Papa Hades takes more of a beating, a more of a ridiculous beating than any other creature in this entire film. Yeah, literally. Paul gets put through his chest. He gets stabbed. He's shot in the the head. head. And it makes it seem like, oh, he's been shot in the head. He's going down from this. And then he just... He just like berserker rages all the way through it and just runs at the woman that shot him. Runs at Barbie, starts to try and choke her. Um, Napoleon basically skewers him with this like large spear. He's unbothered. Yeah, he's unbothered by even that. And then that's the point where uh, Barbie sticks her fingers into the bullet wound in his uh, skull. And starts wiggling her fingers about. It takes about ten seconds of exactly <laughs> like her wiggling her fingers in his brain for him to go. Okay, I think I'm dead now. And then he falls over. Doesn't he get back up? Yeah, he gets back up again. Yeah, he. Yeah, like had his brain like literally made into a cocktail with fingers, and then he falls down. Gets back up and I think Missy starts like putting pickaxes in him or something. Yeah, it stabs him a few times and eventually, uh, from right, shoves a pole through his head. Ah, oh, that's it. And that's all she wrote, finally. I'll be honest, I'd smack him a few more times. It's uh, tedious how often he gets up. It's, it's insane. Especially from the fact that like, the bullet that uh, Barbie used to shoot him, it was made explicitly clear about halfway through the film she was leaving one bullet for herself kind of thing so it's mm-hmm. it's a reason to have it even though they're out of ammo and you think oh yeah the bullet comes back and it kills him it saves the day but no it wasn't fucking needed it barely did shit yeah uh, yeah it kind of finishes there they get out see I've mm, I'm I'm looking at a wiki to kind of tell me what the plot was because again I was half asleep during this there's like a last line where it's like as the survivors prepare to depart the mines, they are watched by an unknown mutant using their own surveillance equipment. As in an inserted narrative implies that none of the guardsmen left Sector 16 alive, 
and that ex- uh, that its existence and disappear and, and their disappearance are hushed up by the authorities. Yeah, so right at the end, uh, after they kill Hades, they start walking off. But yeah, you see the same surveillance equipment used at the start by the scientists, uh, which show life signs and a mutant's looking over it. Mm-hmm. On kind of a computer screening, you see like them, uh, them as dots kind of walking out. Infrared, I think it was. Yeah. And then you see a mutant hand kind of shut the PC. And then in text form, it says that all soldiers were regarded as absentee from leave, uh, absentee from duty or something. They ran off from duty to hush it up. Yeah, it's a bit unsatisfying and a bit copy-paste from the last film, to be honest. But uh, yeah, that's all she wrote for the second film of the series. Uh, Jesus, it's a lot of hills, a lot of eyes. Yeah. Uh, I just want to read this um, someone's uh, review of... The Hills of Eyes 2, the remake. The premise of Hills of Eyes 2, a quick follow-up to the skillful but gratuitous 2006 remake, uh, seems t- like a perfect opportunity to give the mutants their due, since it deploys a group of military people back to the scene of the crime, and yet it stupidly does the opposite, reducing the mutants to mind-dwelling freaks who murder and rape because, well, that's what they do. Which seems exactly like the plot of this film. Yeah, that's a pretty adequate summary yeah. in one nice line. Pithy, almost. So, in terms of recommendations, I think since this is kind of two separate uh, series, almost the modern and the originals, which of the two would you recommend if you had to sit through the modern day or the original ones? Wow. Um, uh, you're going to have to sit through the sequel, if you had to sit through the sequel as well. I think we agreed on the order they come in, definitely. Like, the, the first, the remake... First remake's the best. Original, and then original sequel, new sequel. Yeah. I'm trying to think whether the, uh, the first, the, the best one outweighs the shitness of this second one. Uh, you know what? I'd say with the original, the original two, just because they're not... They keep the same tone completely through uh, both of the films, whereas... The first one of the remake and the second one of the remake, they seem like completely different ideals of film. Yeah, that's fair. Like, the second one seems like more of an action film with a stupid, like, plot angle slash weird rape fantasy sort of thing tagged on. Whereas the first one of the remake is a really good, decent horror film. Yeah, the originals, you've got only got the tying element, the glue of um, Pluto and uh, Ruby yeah. that holds it all together. I think if you are just going to watch one of them, definitely go with the remake. Yeah, if you watch if you watch only one Hills of Eyes film, watch the remake of the first one and that's it. I'd honestly recommend just watch the remake if you haven't yet. It is really good. It's standing up today. I love the director. The actors are all great. Uh, the effects... Yeah, still hold up. Yeah, and I've realised what Doug's from. I've seen Doug in X Men uh, two and three. He was Pyro. Pyro, fucking. He's the blonde one that's hanging Pyro. off mutant, uh, Magneto's ass. Seriously, he was uh, like the anti ice man. Yeah, I knew I recognised him from somewhere. I was like, he's not blonde. That's why I don't recognise him properly. No, he's just into some of those. But, uh, yeah, watch remake. Cheers. Uh, I will say, just quickly. Thank you for the people in America that actually listened to this and uh, commented on it. 
if you can carry on just like passing it around we'd be very very thankful yeah thanks to the people in Oregon yeah a surprising number of you uh, and cheers for the comments everything's appreciated but uh, yeah cheers for listening and have a happy holiday bye